The following is intended only for mature audiences. Discretion advised. You have notes, as I recall. What happens in Spawn? Let's talk about some Spawn shit. Ah, oh, fuck you, ass. I didn't bring my notes. You didn't bring your notes? No, notes on, it's Why literally think- written on paper. Because I didn't think we were going to have fucking Okay, spawn well, we, we can... The, 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 okay, we'll, but the one we're talking about is the one with... Ma- Apex. Apex? Yeah. The gorilla? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. yeah, I told you. I thought we... Uh, well, 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 no, we didn't. We never recorded on that one. You want so to do we'll, it uh, No, because you'll tell me you want to do it, then we won't actually do it. Oh, no, and I, I, don't, I don't need that quick anyway. We'll work it out. But oh, uh, so that's okay. That's okay. Well, I can work around. Well, no, I actually read it. Like, that's the one where I know you did. I, I, I'm the doctor you. goes in oh, there. Yeah. I mean, we can do well, it. Well, I mean... No, no, no. I, you got notes. No, you got notes. We'll deal with it later on. It's not important. We need to record something related to that episode, but I'm not... It's I got to do editing because I already recorded with this guy. And I gotta mix you together and shit. So it's okay. We'll just record on it in a week or so. Okay. I first read this comic at least a year, year and a half ago because I had read everything up through issue 40 in hopes of us recording like a whole bunch of spawns at once. And then we recorded several spawns in, in one sitting. So that was cool. But then we've been missing each other ever since then. So it's like I, I, I've reread the book. I've taken notes on the book. Not at the same times necessarily. I keep coming back to the same issue and I'm just sick of the sight of the goddamn thing now. And it's sad because it's not really that bad of an issue. It's actually probably one of the better spawn issues of the ones we've covered recently. But I'm just sick of looking at the goddamn thing. I'm sick of looking at the goddamn monkey at this point. I was going to say, I feel like we've already recorded this podcast several times already. Right. We've come I close. Could be wrong, but I feel like we've already recorded it. Yeah, unfortunately not. I wish we had because I'm, I'm just so tired of this one. We still haven't done the Christmas one and I remember that one as well. as like, oh, geez, we still got to do that. So, little background. Spawn number eight was released on December 7th, 1995. It was the number two book for the month behind Spawn number 39. So, the only thing that was beating Spawn was Spawn. Same month, Shaman's Tears number zero came out, which I believe was the last issue of that series. You've got Shadowhawks of Legend number one, which was a one shot. And I think it's going to set up what they do with Shadowhawk going into the future. I know you've read that one because that's the one that had the Alan Moore story you talked about when you bring up Shadowhawk. Uh, This month also brought us the crossing slash the rebirth of Iron Man number one. So that's when you've got Teen Tony and you've got like the the last gasp of the Avengers before they're going to go into Heroes Reborn, the Liefeld Jim Lee stuff, which of course is going to have a major impact on image in the near future. You've got DC versus Marvel slash Marvel versus DC number one. One, so that's happening and that'll never happen again. It was momentous at the time, but it's like, it's so weird to think about how they actually managed to do a bunch of those things for a number of years. And now because of the way the corporate world works, you're never going to see anything like that again. You're almost certainly never going to see it reprinted again. That thing is, you're like lost, going to be lost of time. It looks like you've got the new Titans number 130, which is the last issue of the longest running series of Teen Titans books. You got the first issue of Black Canary Oracle, Birds of Prey number one. So that's going to launch multiple series of books and eventually a motion picture. Uh, you've got G.I.J number one this is the dark horse comic where they were trying to do the extreme gi joe that never took off uh, and that's one of those things where you'll watch like a 10 minute video on youtube about it but otherwise nobody gives a shit that it ever existed you've got magnus robot fire number 64 so that's the final issue of uh, one of the valiant series is i'm sure that's the longest running series ever to feature that character and i guess at this point that's sort of the beginning of the end of the relationship between the gold key characters that they launched valiant with and the modern valiant that has to be divorced from all that stuff since that's owned by a different 
company. So uh, any of that of interest to you as far as discussion was? Not really. Well, I mean, wait, which G.I. Joe was it now? You remember G.I. Joe Extreme? The ones that were a little bit bigger, a little bit more McFarlane-esque? They were the trying to deal like Koi Daz and stuff. So you're, they had- Are you bigger... talking about the toys or the comic? Well, this the Dark Horse was adapting the comic. Oh, sorry. They, the Dark Horse was adapting the new toy line, the Extreme G.I. Joe toy line. So and they had a cartoon Scott, as well. The Scott Jane Campbell covers and shit? No, that was later. That You're, you're thinking it's, about okay. like Image or IDW or somebody. Okay, or, even, I think or, that's kind of what I said. I did read G.I. Joe comics when I was a kid and I yeah. think I, I kind of got my interest peaked back when he was doing the covers. I didn't realize that they did that in the middle so no, I didn't. Yeah, really. this is the one where they had the, the Frank Miller cover and it was just like a silhouette of a soldier and I thought that they were going to do a reveal when the actual comic came out and you were going to see the actual image but no, it was just a fucking silhouette. So it was very anonymous series of G.I. Joe comics there and they, I think it only ran like four issues. Cannot say I've ever read one. No. Yeah, I, I remember buying it new because I was intrigued by the start of a new G.I. Joe at a different company and yeah it, it left no impression whatsoever it was li- pretty freaking lame spawn number 38 we got the cover with the scientist guy and the, the robot gorilla what do you think of the cover i mean it's it's cool i mean it's a robot monkey yeah right? at least not spawn just standing there like usual yeah i mean i, I remember at this point i, I want to say i originally read this when it came out but i wasn't really it wasn't one of those books that kind of kept my attention very long i kind of just read it and then set it aside read them and set aside i think at the time i was even buying from your shop and i told you i would i kind of like binge watch or binge read sometimes where I'd wait for like, you know, six months worth of issues to come out and just read them. Yeah, yeah. I remember you telling me about that in the past. Uh, this would have been about a year out before you and I would have met though. So okay. you, you were buying that from my partner, not me. Yes, but I think I was been, at this point I was, after the whole writer's block, I was kind of a little burnt out on Spawn. Yeah, and so the story credit for it, Mind Games, story credit is Todd McFarlane and Julia Simmons. I, she's not really a thing. She apparently was the graphic coordinator on Cyber Force number eight, whatever that means, but that was also a Todd McFarlane issue. I mean, I have to assume that she's the wife of Al Simmons, the namesake for the character, and I guess she was helping out with the story. Maybe it was her idea to do Cygor, I don't know. Arts by Tony Daniel and Kevin Conrad, and the issues dedicated to Marv Wolfman. You have familiarity with him? Mark Wolfman, yes. Uh, he did a lot of uh, Teen Titans, right? Oh, yeah. He was co-creator of the new Teen, Teen Titans. Titans with George Perez. Exactly. And, and again, that series ended this month, the same month this book came out. So I don't know, maybe that's related, oh, okay. knowing that his his run was finally over with. But yeah, that's about as familiar as I am with him. No worries. So what happened in this issue? Um, So we are, I believe we go into a, so do you want me to like rehash the whole issue? Only to the degree that you care. I only care so much myself. I've got a few notes here that I can jump in on. Uh, I mean, I just like the fact that, you know, the doctor had put his, his the love of his life's brain in the gorilla because he could withstand pain. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. But besides that, it was kind of a meh issue. Yeah. Well, just as a quick overview, we started off with some mysterious guy named Chris who uh, goes to the gate of a like a mansion or a facility and there's a security guard there. He kills the security guard. He gets to the facility. This is supposed to be like an advanced scientific lab but it's filthy. It's, it's a cobweb laden, you know, a mansion essentially looks like a haunted mansion and this guy finds records from this one mad scientist dude who'd been working with the government. He's talking about how he fell in love with this nurse of his named Anna and we see her in 1975, 1981, 86 where basically he loves her and he's kind of a twitch looking dude so like somebody who's a hot nurse should not be into this guy but because she is yeah. clearly like puts her on a pedestal and, and when she turns out to have like a neurological disorder that uh, causes them to have a couple of miscarriages and stuff he, he wants 
wants to have a life with this person, but it's not working out. And then she herself is fading and he won't let her go. So he does all this scientific stuff to try to save her. He's giving her blood transfusions on the daily, all this nutty stuff. Finally, he gets solicited by the U.S. government to be part of this cybernetic simian project. Because gorillas have such a high thresh pain threshold, much higher than humans, you're able to uh, work out cybernetic experiments with them that you can't do with humans. That yields the creation of Cygor. And I don't remember if they ever say if he, like the plan was to put the um, Anna's brain into a gorilla, like an ultra humanite thing or what. But no, I think that was just, I think it was just kind of to hold her over until he could put it in a human body. Yeah. And so is it Anna's brain in the Cygor or is it just that they, they that was the research and Cygor is a separate entity entirely from Anna? I, I, I read it as Anna's in Cygor because when I was reading it, I immediately thought of Steve Martin's Oh, right. Man with brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a deep cut, they, man. They I don't know how many people are going to get that, that one. I, I, I saw that one though live. I, I saw that one uh, at, at the movies when it came out. Oh, really? Well, because they allude at that even in that movie. I remember because I remember reading this. I'm like, I've, I've seen something like this before. And then I remember that's there's like a gorilla in the movie that supposedly has a human brain in it. The guy keeps like looking around the mansion. He finally finds Anna's decaying corpse. Uh, he comes across a VHS tape where the doctor was recording his, some of his information. The doctor ultimately had a stroke and I think they dismissed everybody that would have been working with him. So it was just him obsessively working on his own. So after he stroked out, there wasn't anybody to help him. And I think that he just was lying there on the floor. Eventually, Cygor escapes and hadn't eaten in three weeks. I, I want to say they imply that he ate the doctor's corpse or ate the doctor before uh-huh. he died or something like that. Finally, the bad dude with, I think he had a ponytail and shit, trench coat, that kind of shit. He runs into Cygor. Cygor's hungry. He got it. That's the end of his ass. And we get introduced to the concept of Cygor. Uh, as far as subplots go, we have Cog talking Al out of killing Jason Wynn again. The same thing we have with the cartoon where it's like, he's a red herring. He's, he's not important. You know, keep your eyes on the prize. Don't fight with Wynn. It's going to cause problems, blah, blah, blah. They never adequately explained why that was. And it's just pages and pages of that shit. And then finally, you have uh, Grant and e. Blake and Al talking about whether or not Al has a seat in heaven. The end of that issue. Thank God I never have to think about this comic book again. <laughs> so any other thoughts on the issue? Any thoughts on Cygor as a concept? No, not really. He looks cool. Does, I bought the toy does, on sale does, because does it looks so cool. Again? Huh? Does she pop up again in the book? Cygor? Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, Cygor pops up over and over again throughout the series. It's one of the only okay. toys they made that they kept coming back to over and over again. You know, a lot of those toys had like cool lore on the back card and everything. And they never even got like a Curse of Spawn anthology story. But Cygor yeah. is it, like, when I quit reading Spawn after the 300s, Cygor was still re- regularly recurring in the book. So Cygor's gonna be around well, You just bought a toy of it, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. They, they had that really super nice, uh, well-built uh, uh, figure at uh, one of the game stops, I think it was, you were shopping yeah. at. They were having them on sale. So I picked it up for like maybe $20 and it's just enormous and it's super gorgeous sculpt. It's like, I don't really give a shit about Cygor as a character, but I, I'm always down for a cybernetic monkey to add to the toy collection. Very much a grod feel to me. Oh, definitely, definitely. But unfortunately, they, we don't ever get to see any intelligence. It's just a cybernetic gorilla humping around going, <laughs> I don't think so anyway. I, they, I definitely feel like this is more of a gorilla than in the mist caliber of intelligence than not like fucking doing sign language well, and shit. I, I want to say, because like I said, dude, I, I this is about the time I was kind of weighing on reading Spawn as much. I wasn't keeping up with it like I probably could have. Mm-hmm. But I want to say I popped, I popped in and out. I want to say I saw at one point maybe they had like weapons attached to them or say I, I don't remember. Yeah, well, I mean, it wouldn't shock me. We like to have accessories with our toys. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I'm looking at them right now. I, I have them on my shelf with the uh, all of my image figures that are at, at my eye line. I've got two shelves of just image related characters. And because it's so big, I have it propped along the side next to a bookcase and he's towering over Dutch from Youngblood Comics and Voodoo from Wildcats Comics and near to Saber, uh, the buffalo creature uh, from the Spawn line that they never did anything with in the 
comic books, unfortunately. I always like the oh. Native American stuff they did in Spawn toys, and it never translated into the comics, unfortunately. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to get to that one whenever we uh, get to those issues. Yeah. just saw an article the other day somebody i didn't read it because like oh i do i want to i want to be reminded of that time in my life but the, the headline was enough for me it said cartoons you almost grew up on <laughs> because back in the day this was when the x-men cartoon had finished its run and fox kids was the place for cartoons back then that was it you had a cartoon on fox kids you were the next ninja turtles and we had it all lined up we were going to be the replacement for the X-Men. Cyberforce. Cyberforce. The idea that Marvel turned down its retreat. Right, and we were going to be the image action hour. We actually had the animation house that did the X-Men. We had Mattel toys. They actually made toys, Cyberforce toys. You can find them on eBay. And we had scripts written for the uh, Cyberforce cartoon. Right when the decisions were being made to move forward, Saban Entertainment came in and bought Fox Kids. And I think the first order was anything not Marvel gets tossed. And there went the Image Action Hour. There went the Image Action Hour, and there went the whole Marvel uh, Mattel thing. I was like, well, oh, that was a bad meeting. <laughs> because, you know, they would call us every week. said, okay, how's the TV show going? It's like, oh, it's still on track. We're still good. We're still good. And uh, suddenly, oh, we're not so good anymore. But they made the toys. You know, I don't, this probably, it's a couple million bucks they probably spent on those toys. And they're cool toys. They even made a Hot Wheel. That's that a came out. ginormous woulda, coulda, shoulda, right? Yeah, you the know. The story that, of how we almost got a cyber force in Yeah, it. I mean, we were that close. Saturday mornings flashed into the action zone with the all-new, totally awesome, super-powered, ultimate action team, Wildcats. Saturdays on CBS. I'm not wanting to make a big commitment into Killer Instinct because it's a crossover at Image, so there's not too terribly much depth to this thing. And I didn't want you guys to have to read this shit either because there's just not enough value to it. So I, I tried to figure out a way of making it fun and also like how, find a way to get through the material. To get a little backstory, they put out, in 2022, they put out the complete Cyberforce. And even though I've never been a big fan of Cyberforce, I went ahead and got it in hardcover just as part of my commitment to the Image founders and, and their wares and stuff. Plus, I just like the idea of having this stuff in a permanent volume for whatever I happen to need it. You know, we went on a cruise, our first cruise last year. Usually when we're traveling, you know, we're doing international travel, which means you're going to pack as light as you can. Not only because you, you've you got to have enough clothes for the trip and you, you want to make sure you have your necessities, but also if you happen to get anything while you're on the trip, you don't want to have to try to ship that stuff. It can be very expensive. You want to try to get it all in your suitcases and, and get it back to the country with you, right? So because we're doing the cruise, there's no major issues with how much stuff we can take on. If we have extra stuff, we can just either buy more luggage and carry it off with us or just carry it in bags or whatever. So this is the first time we did one of these trips where it just didn't matter how much shit we brought with us. And also knowing that I'm going to be on a fucking boat in the middle of fucking ocean, I'm not willing to pay for me to have my own internet and the internet sucks on the cruise anyway. So it's like, this is a good opportunity. I'll be in a, on a boat for long periods of time. I can get some reading in. There's no reason why I can't take a bunch of books with you. So I, I went hard. You like, I, I, I packed my suitcase full of big, thick, Card covers and omnibuses. Like I bought one of the fucking Cerebus phone books with me. I don't have internet and because I don't want to sit on my computer anyway, it's supposed to be a vacation. I brought a journal with me and I actually hand wrote the notes that, uh, on my readings from uh, this particular edition. Well, the first few pages is, is uh, we got in the drink package and I was going through as many mixed drinks possible so I could 
know what I do and don't like the next time I'm actually in a club or something. And instead of having to go like, oh, give me another white Russian because I don't know anything else to order. I would actually have a repertoire, which you've already seen I've been able to take advantage of because oh, we're out eating the other night. Bring me a gimlet. I like a gimlet. Let me have a gimlet. And it turns out I had had Amaretto Sour, by the way. That wasn't a new beverage, but I knew that I liked it. And so I ordered both and I enjoyed my mixed drinks this way. Unfortunately, on the cruise, they, they really water their shit down. So pretty much at no point was it ever buzzing. But regardless, even though I have like multiple pages of, of writing on these books, I still had a little bit of trouble understanding what the fuck I was writing because these notes are so damn old at this point. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been bringing the hardcover and the, this book with me to our meetings ever since then. And time after time, no matter my best intentions and the fact that since it's handwritten in a book, I figured that'd be a good way. Well, I'll just read off the book and that way I don't have to have a complicated computer set up to read internet notes and shit, text notes, that kind of thing. But A, it never happened. B, my memory has gone a little gray on what these notes mean. And C, given that it's been so many months now, the odds of us ever actually doing it the way I planned on doing it aren't great. So I took notes. I was going to read out the notes. And then I have various questions and, and stuff related to this material that we can, we can bullshit about. And that'll fill up a bunch of time. Sounds good. Let's do it. And really, in retrospect, it should have been obvious, but it still threw me and Mac when you said it. You like Mark Silvestri better than Jim Lee. Yes. Now, part of the reason why... <laughs> Part of the reason, I'm sure, is you started reading X-Men during the Mark Silvestri run. Yes. Some of your favorite material involves The Brood yes. and Reavers. Yes. Did you ever experience Mark Silvestri before X-Men? Uh, I did see him in, um, what was that? It wasn't Hulk. I've seen his artwork before. I own some of his artwork. I, I really like his style. Sure, but like your first exposure, though. Like, or just offhand, have you ever collected any series that Mark Silvestri drew before he drew X-Men? I'm trying to think. I know I have, I have to have something. Well, what did you buy of his after being exposed to him in X-Men? I definitely picked up like fucking, uh, what's the, the fucking dudes that are all gold? That's Wetworks, dude. Yeah, Wetworks. I'm talking about Mark Silvestri, the Cyberforce guy. Oh, well, but didn't he do Woodworks too? Or No, that was Will Sportacio. He did Cyberforce. Oh, Cyberforce. Yeah. Well, Cyberforce, you know, Voodoo. Uh, he didn't do Voodoo either. What are you talking about? Yeah, dude, she's part of Wildcats. Yeah, it's that Cyberforce's oh, Mark Silvestri, dude. My bad, my bad. <laughs> So I'm th- wait, so I'm thinking of the the big hulking metal guy, um, Impact yeah. and Velocity. So did, did you not buy his Velocity. Wolverine run? Huh? Did you not buy Mark Sylvester's Wolverine run with Sabretooth and Nick Fury and all that kind of shit? The issue 50 with the claws ripping through the cover and it's a dossier. You didn't buy any of that shit? Is it the one where he's like scratching down the cover? Yeah, well, no, it's not. The, remember the cover was die cut, so it actually looked like a, a file folder, a manila folder that's been slashed by claws. I probably haven't. And you see him in, inside the comic, like staring, staring out of the, the folder. I, look, I like, yeah, no, I do. No, no go ahead. Well, what about that big run where Nick Fury proved that Sabretooth wasn't Wolverine's dad after all these years we thought he was the dad and they had to fight in the sewers with LCD and the robot Albert, the robot Wolverine. I kind of remember that, yeah. You didn't buy any of that shit? No, I had it with the little girls on his yeah, back and shit. Yeah. Dude, I haven't read that shit since it came out. But did you buy it when it was coming out? Oh yeah, out? no, I did, yeah. Okay. Because oh, I bought- like that style. I mean, the, the fucking way he drew the robot with parts missing and yeah. shit and Wolverine. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, they look fucking great. Cyberforce. Did you buy that when it was first I did buy out? Cyberforce when it came out. Dude, I bought all image books when it came sure. out. So How I, long they, did you stick they with kinda, it? They kind of Cyberforce. I did do the uh, Velocity, the Cyberforce Origins. So, yeah, I did that. Okay. I did Impact. Cyblade was one of those, as I recall. I think Cyblade was one. Did, so did, like, wh- you got the original miniseries for sure, then? Yes. And then you, I guess you bought some of the ongoing series as well. Yes. Okay. Where, so because those those specials came out a few years because the run, as I, I, I remember. I mean, they did cool shit. Like I still remember where they went into outer space and it. Oh no, but that's Wildcats. Then they do like that's. <laughs> see, that's where I get mixed up because I get. No, I'm, I trust me. I'm, I'm getting that in. 
impression firmly. Yeah. Because yeah. Warblade. Okay, so well, before we, okay, let's stop for a minute then, because this will help to differentiate a little bit. Okay, so you knew Sylvestri from Ekman. Yes. And you were collecting it during all the Siege Perilous shit. You yeah. had the issue where Wolverine's crucified and all that kind of good yeah. stuff. Yeah. Then okay. they do up to and extension. No. No, no he, he, no, no. he yeah, went he around for yeah, He, he wasn't around for that. When did you first get exposed to Jim Lee? Mm, I remember my I had, I had uh, What If Covers. Got confused. What If Covers. What If Covers, okay. Like, did you, like, the, the Punisher versus Wolverine, the two-parter that everybody. Of yeah, yeah, because here's the thing. Which like, was I, not as fucking cool as everybody made it sound. Yeah, but the art on Wolverine, Wolverine look, had not looked that cool in a long time. Um, you don't think see. that Jim Lee's Wolverine was fucking killer? No. Okay, fair, fair. Like, did you ever read any of his Alpha Flight run? I have some of those issues. Did you get them new, though, or did I you mean, buy them I have, after the fact? The winner? Did you buy them new or after the fact? No, after the fact. Okay. And did you buy his Punisher War Journal from the beginning? Yes. From number actually, one? I have several. Uh, are you talking about the... Uh, no, I do. I have like this, the first... That was the dollar seventy. Yeah, I have like the first... I have yeah. the first like 12 issues, the 13 issues still. Okay. Um, and I you bought still, those new? I bought those new. Okay. I, I even bought... I think he did some of the uh, armory ones, didn't he? I don't think so. Because here's the thing that was weird about that is Carl Potts, the editor, he was he worked at Epic and he, and he did Alien Legion and he did some other stuff. He was one of these guys who he could draw, but I don't think he could draw to do like monthly books. I think he could... He was good at design. He could do covers. He could do layouts, but he, he didn't have the time or the energy or the interest to do an actual like monthly comic book series. That's, and when you got something like Frank Sirocco drawing your stories, then you don't need to draw them yourself. You're probably happy to get him to do it. But he was so, I think, I don't know if he's an art director or what, but he mentored Jim Lee and he would often do layouts for Jim Lee for like his Alpha Flight material. I think he did some covers, like he laid it out and then Jim Lee would draw it. I'm confident that he laid out the cover of Punisher War Journal number one. That's where he's like leaping down on yeah. some thugs and shit. And so he basically was teaching Jim Lee how to draw as a neophyte penciler on Alpha Flight. And then as he became more popular and his style became more dynamic, Lee was doing more and more of the stuff himself. But Potts would not only, was he still doing some of the cover layouts for Lee, but I think he also did some of the, the armory stuff, but also most of that stuff was Elliot R. Brown, who was the guy who did all the technical drawings for our official handbook of the Marvel Universe. That was like his big claim to fame was, was that stuff. So I think that's where your the confusion is coming from. Well, no, I think Jim Lee did some like interiors. He, but might, not, he might have done some covers. No, I, remember, I, I, I think, remember I think he actually did the first cover of the armory. I remember instance. distinctly buying it and I was that the oh, one where he's like just standing there with like a big I think ass so. gun? Yeah, I think he probably did that. Because he did right. some of the interiors and stuff like that. And I remember seeing, yeah. I was like, oh, I know who this is, Jim Lee. So. Yeah. And so you were reading X-Men when the Lady Mandarin stuff was happening during kind the of, yeah. Acts of Vengeance. I think there's a lot of similarity between Jim Lee and Mark Silvestri. When you were buying the book, did you even notice there was a different artist? Or for you, was there like a well, continuity yeah. there? So Will, was it Will? Uh, Will's Portacio. Portacio was almost like them, but his shit was very like. He was darker. Well, not just darker, but a lot of lines, like very stiff yeah. lines in his artwork. Well, I'm confident that Will Sportacio, especially as inked by Scott Williams, was an influence on Jim Lee. Okay. I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain of that. I mean, yeah, I mean, there would be times I would see a cover and I, I couldn't tell you who drew it. Yeah. I knew it was one and, of them. And Lee was doing a lot of covers, especially when the book would be bi-weekly. Yeah. Like, I think he did the cover with the stalker, like, Dazzler was getting stalked. Mm -hmm. And I think he did that cover where it's all red, he's got the pictures all over the, the, the room and stuff. I know he did the cover with the one with Hardcase and the Harriers, that bullshit non-starter team. And the interiors were, I don't know, like, Bill Jasker or Mike Collins or some shit, but he did the cover, and you're like, whoa, that's a great looking cover. I know he did the one with Beast, the Blue Furry Beast, and Forge, and I think Jean Grey, where they're like in the Morlock tunnels and stuff. So he, he was doing covers, but he didn't do interiors, I don't think, until he was doing the, the three-parter for Acts of Vengeance. Okay. And then he went away again, because I think he was still doing Punisher at that point, like off and on, and then he became the official ongoing artist uh, around 268, the the famous Captain America, Madripoor Knights issue, the yeah, flashback is that, to the 1940s. Is that the word Cap? And where he's leaping Black out Widow. and fighting the hand.
and yeah, Black Widow. Yeah, yeah, yeah I have that issue. Yeah. Oh yeah, uh, we all remember that issue. That issue. If you you definitely Actually, which, do artists on the book okay, by that who point. Who drew the poster where it's Cap and Wolverine fighting and Wolverine's hitting Cap's shield? Oh, that's Mike Zett. That's from Mike the Captain Zett. America okay, Annual. Zett, yeah. yeah, I used to have that poster. I remember that. Oh yeah, yeah. So then Jim Lee took over the book right after they introduced Gambit because there was one issue where I, I think it was, it, it was Wolves and Jim together were working on it. Like one of them inked the other one or some shit, or did one of them did layouts, one did the finishes. But the yeah, the first appearance of Gambit, which was I think Mike Collins, and then the second appearance was the badass Wolves Portacio one. And then after that, I think you had one of the Magneto stories, Magneto and Rogue in the Savage Land. I think that was Jim. Who Lee. did the cover oh, where the Master one... Mold is getting sucked into the hole? That's about when. Uh... No, that was that was Silvestri. The Silvestri. That was that was part of that was the, like toward the beginning of Siege Perilous. Okay, yeah, yeah. And Silvestri did much of that, but that's when he was sort of transitioning off the book and onto Wolverine, and they were slowly bringing Jim Lee on. And then of course, when you mentioned Extinction Agenda, that was yeah. pretty much Jim Lee. Yeah, I think they had some filling guys. Yeah, I was gonna say that one because that's that's about when they were changing yeah. over, right? Well, the one, yeah, and then well, I mean, again, it started in the late two six, and then what when Jim Lee was really starting to come into his own was like two seventy four, two seventy five, two seventy five. They recently did a cartoonist kayfabe where they said that this was the greatest Jim Lee work of all time was two seventy five, where they had the gatefold cover and all the X Men are in the uh, classic uniforms, although they're they're sexied up, and you got the Imperial Guard in the background and Xavier in that weird uh, Imperial armor is in the background mm-hmm. as well, and then you, you open the first page and you've got that badass Star Jammers, the, the greatest image of the Star Jammers ever. These characters, yeah, easily like you look at that that splash page and you think that the Star Jammers are viable characters in their own team book, which of course was never the case. And then of course that leads into X Men number one, the eight million copy yeah. selling book, and everything like that. So that had fucking eight covers. That's right. why they sold fucking eight million. Right? Because so you had to, oh yeah, buy every it, it, fucking. It was cover. five, by the way. It was it was four. Doesn't matter, dude. That was a fifth. fucking. Yeah. I know it's a bit of a scam, but they were yeah. all scams. Yeah. You know, uh, Spider Man number one had the different uh, color inks. X Force had the different trading cards. They all had scams. You know, at least you got a whole different cover. You know, uh, but anyway, setting that aside, were you ever a Jim Lee fan? Yeah, I mean, I, I am a fan of his. I do like his art. I'm just not like I'm not wowed by. It. I just I don't I don't know. I just I've... so like you, there you, there are spot images. I'm sure you're. Impressed oh no, by. there's no. He's a great artist. I will never. T- no, he's he's definitely on you know Mount Rushmore of artists. I just don't like his style. I couldn't tell you why Sylvester. Some about Sylvester style. Just I read more in the art. Okay. The style of it, the look, the shading, the way the characters. It's are. definitely grittier. It just it to me it speaks more. Where Jim mm-hmm. Lee's is very clean. It's very like Almost the, the writer told me to make Batman do this. And the yeah. brother said the Joker should do this, and it, it doesn't feel I don't know. I, I I just saw something where they had brought him in. Jim Lee was talking about um Mike uh what's, what's the Snyder cut when they were trying to sell sure. sell the rest of the fucking uh, the movies that Jim Lee actually went onto a fucking like blackboard and drew out what Snyder was talking about, and he drew and I mean it looked great, and this mm-hmm. is fucking markers on a fucking checkboard, mm-hmm. which you know most artists couldn't pull off, and he pulled it off. Granted, it was quick, but it still looked fucking. I mean, I I saw it, I'm like well, that's absolutely. Absolutely, Jim Lee. I mean, you could have. He could have walked out of the room, and I walked in. I would have said, "Well, Jim Lee drew that." I can tell mm-hmm. his uh, his style is very distinctive. Yeah. So, but you still prefer Mark Silvestri's though. Yeah, I just I just like the way he shade, you know, the shade. It just maybe it wasn't his inking, but just I don't know this. I don't know how to describe it. Well, like, like the, the early characters were inked like, by Scott like Albert. When you looked at Albert, like you could see a story in the drawing itself, yeah. like the way he was. I, I want to say Dan Green was inking him during that period, or maybe Bob Vichet. So a lot of it, I think, was still him carrying most of the weight on that. I don't think like Jim Lee without Scott Williams is not the 
same caliber of artist. Where okay. Mark Silvestri, whether it's Vicek or Green or some other guy, still pretty much Silvestri. Yeah. Now, when Scott Williams is giving him the Jim Lee polish, like on Cyber Force, he does go up to, I think, another level for, for in terms of what fans are looking for. And real quick, it's Ripclaw. Ripclaw, that, was, yeah. that I always got him and Warblade mixed up. Oh, sure. You're, I'm sure you're not the only one. Because it always, <laughs> ponytail dudes with clawed hands. Right. But what are saying? I do think something that's been talked about a lot in the years since, and something we've definitely broached as we've been talking about the people beyond the founding seven is the clickishness. Uh, you have the, the, the um, self-interest from each member of the founders, except for Wills Portasio. He's the only one who doesn't really seem like he was worried about keeping up with the Joneses and being a Napoleon or anything. But all the other guys were definitely in active competition with one another and, and isolating from one another. And it's a weird situation because, again, I don't know that Mark Silvestri and Jim Lee really knew each other all that well from the X-Men years. And really, when you think about it, Mark Silvestri's career got derailed by Jim Lee. I mean, like, tell me this, like, you came into comics a little bit later. What did you know Mark Silvestri from before the image evolution, revolution? X-Men. Yeah. Anything else, though? No. Okay. And then uh, was he still doing X-Men when you started reading comics? uh, To to give you more context around that, so, you know, my brother's a big Sabretooth fan. Mm -hmm. He was a big X-Men guy. And a lot of that Wolverine, Sabretooth stuff was Sylvester. Mm -hmm. So I would say we had more Sylvester X-Men comics than Jim Lee X-Men comics just because they were fucking Jim Lee stuff. was harder to get. Yeah. Uh, Until, you know, the big uh, X-Men number one relaunch with Claremont, that stuff I had. But so, correct me if I'm wrong, right? Isn't that how, didn't Jim Lee did Uncanny and then he was replaced by... Sylvester, is that how that worked? No. 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 Am I way off? Am I way, wrong? Yeah, yeah. No, what it was, Sylvester took over from John Romita Jr. in the late 80s. I want to say around 87, 88. Oh, that's right. right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and that, and he was, was Romita post-burn or? Romita was uh, after, <laughs> big gap there, okay. So I, I, I okay. Better, get, better lay this out, is of course. Yeah, let's lay it out. Uncanny X-Men first starts to get hot under Dave Cockrell. Uh, who, and I, I will say, the, one of the reasons why it's confusing is fucking Chris Claremont wrote the book forever. Mm-hmm. Right, and a lot of these artists spanned Chris Claremont's run. So, it, I, I, as an Avengers guy, you know, sort of looking in from outside, it gets a little confusing. Yeah. Anyway, so go ahead. you've got Dave Cockrum. Cockrum, and this is that back in a time period where the book is like bi-monthly at best because they were just coming back from a hiatus where they weren't publishing anything at all, and then a long period before that where it was just a reprint series. Okay, so you've got Cockrum, and then he has trouble keeping up with the monthly schedule. And as the book is becoming more popular, they're trying to get more issues in. John Byrne had already been working with Chris Claremont on uh, Marvel Team Up. And so, and I think also they worked together on, I think, Iron Fist, which is where they introduced Sabretooth. So, you know, you've got a little continuity there. And so I think John Byrne naturally just kind of got slotted into that position. And then it was like both of them for a little bit. And then Byrne, of course, took over and turned the book, you know, into the, the number one selling comic book in the country. But then him and Claremont can't get along over credit and shit. So Byrne goes off. He does Fantastic Four. He does Alpha Flight. And he's replaced by the return of Dave Cockrum. But again, Cockrum can't keep up with a monthly schedule very well. And honestly, his work just, he couldn't keep, he he was an older guy when he got famous. And he just, his stuff got stiffer and stiffer as the years went by. More and more dated. He reminded me a lot of Kurt Swan, whereas a person who just is not keeping up with the Joneses and does not adapt his style and just looks progressively more and more dated against everything else that's out there. And I don't know if he left, I think he got lured off to do like Futurians or something. But he got replaced by Paul Smith, who is 
is fantastic. I love Paul Smith, but also total fucking flake. And a guy who would do the book for a few months, make a little money, and then he'd go off and bike across the country. You know, he, that was his thing is he was a biker and he was basically just getting enough money so he could go touring for a while. And so he was extremely unreliable and hard to keep in contact with. So he got replaced by John Amita Jr., who of course is like super reliable, like the exact opposite. Uh, he's he, he's definitely a favorite, but he's definitely more in that like Sal Bushima realm where people love him in part because he does so much stuff and he works on so many icons and you just get used to seeing him doing your icons, not because he ever had a really flashy style that people like really got hung up on. So he leaves to do Star Brand for whatever reason. I think partly he was probably just sick of doing a team book, but also he really wanted to commit to Jim Shooter's new universe for some reason. Like my, the way Shooter tells the story, he tried to, to tell him, no, it's not good for your career to do this. And Romita Jr. just wouldn't let up. And that's how he ended up doing Star Brand. So they had a, several months where they had a bunch of fill-in guys. And then Silvestri came in late in the t- uh, two teens. And he did the book up until the like 260, right? But he had troubles too, because not only did he have some deadline issues, there were a lot of periods of fill-ins where like Rick Leonardi was doing fill-ins. But also in the going into the 90s, X-Men had a tendency to go bi-weekly over the summer and he sure shit couldn't come out with a bi-weekly schedule. And this was, I think, during a period where Claremont wasn't as strong. He, he, I don't think he was just connecting with the readers as well as he used to. And he was using more off-the-beaten-track characters as well. And so people were getting somewhat turned off, I think, to X-Men around this time period. And then while they're needing people to do those summer fill-ins, well, Jim Lee comes along and he does that th- three-part with Psylocke when they introduced the new Psylocke. And right. everybody fucking fell in love with that shit. And they, they'd already been in love with him because he'd already done the Punisher War Journal Punisher. with Wolverine. Yep. And like everybody wanted to see him do Wolverine. And then he does Wolverine again, but also Psylocke, who's basically Elektra. And they do the Jim Lee, the, the Jubilee stuff. And so everybody's like, okay, well, we, we got to get this guy on the fucking book, right? And so basically somebody was like told Mark Silvestri, hey, you want to do Wolverine instead of X-Men? And he's like, I'm about to say money. Sure, sure. Okay, yeah, I'll go do X-Men or, or Wolverine. So they, they basically lured him off the book because they, they wanted to sack his ass and get Jim Lee to be the new regular artist. So even though Jim Lee clearly was influenced by Mark Silvestri, especially in the early days, he also like usurped him, you know? And I think there was always this weird competition between the two of them because somewhere Mark Silvestri knew that Jim Lee had taken his spot from him. He didn't decide to gracefully leave X-Men so much as he's like, hey, we'll give you Wolverine. We want you to do Wolverine. Why don't you go ahead and do this instead of doing X-Men? You know, it's like voluntold, essentially. You're doing Wolverine now. And, and obviously that worked out for him. Wolverine sold really well. That was one of the classic periods of X-Men. Matter of fact, I think that was when Wolverine finally started to get its shit together because Larry Hama came in right around that same time and he was the guy who figured out how to do Wolverine on a monthly schedule where prior to that, I don't think that they knew what they were doing. I think they were just coasting on Wolverine's popularity and I don't think the sales were nearly what X-Men was. It still did well. It was still, I'm sure, a top 10 book, but it just wasn't catching fire the way it should have given there was Wolverine ongoing because I don't think they knew what to do with Wolverine on a monthly basis until Larry Hama and Sylvester teamed up and that's when that book I think was firing all cylinders. Got it. But then you have gotcha. but then you have the image revel- but Sylvester never got an X-Men number one. He never got an X-Force number one. He never got to be the guy who got to launch the series and as we've talked about he was trying to do that. He wanted to do that so he was proposing Cyber Force to the X-Men office and they turned him fucking down and they were just like no you just stay on Wolverine. We don't want to launch this new book. So somewhere that's got to be fucking a burr under this guy's you know collar or something right? Like who the fuck is Jim Lee? He, he ate, bites my style. He takes my jobs. He gets the $8 million comic book. And yet when they start Image, he's still in Jim Lee's studio. He, he's in the homage studios. So it's weird. It's like almost like this weird frenemy energy between these two. Yeah. I mean, I guess that, uh, yeah, you're right. It is weird because I think they are the two most similar image artists. Oh, absolutely. Right? 
I've, I mean, it's not even really close. I mean, Larson is and Todd McFarlane are kind of out there. I don't know what Rob Liefeld is. Jimmy Palmiotti was was a uh, 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 shadow. What's his name? Right. Um, <laughs> no, I, I was waiting for like, okay, how did Jimmy Palmiotti get? No, not chat? not Palmiotti. My Jim Valentino. Man. Jim Valentino. Um, I knew it was. I, I maybe he and Liefeld are a little closer. I don't know. But to me, like Silvestri and Jim Lee are the two most of that Neil Adams uber hatched, mm-hmm. but still legitimate, not hatch for hatching sake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's. Well, you, you definitely argue that there was over rendered, but it, it was over rendered to an, a realistic degree. Like you, you weren't just throwing shit up there to, to throw shit up there like Liefeld would do. Their stuff still made sense anatomically and made sense within the narrative structure. Jim Lee definitely bit Mark Silvestri's style, but then Mark Silvestri turned around and bit Jim Lee's style. And in the image period, I really don't know who's doing what some of the time, especially in this crossover because they're drawing totally. the same characters. I don't like there's uh, the, the image, the art for this, the album art for this one is taken from one of the trade paperbacks and it's a shot of Ripclaw, which clearly is drawn by Mark Silvestri, a shot of a Warblade that's clearly drawn by Jim Lee and then the middle is Misery and I don't know who it is. I don't know if it's Jim, I don't know if it's Mark, I don't know if it's both of them together. I can't fucking tell you because the styles are too damn similar. Yeah, I, I and I, I was going to say the exact same thing. I, I Well, without maybe realizing I was, realizing I was going to say it, Cybercats, I mean, why? <laughs> Names together. Freudian. Cybercats. Uh, Wildcats. I almost said Wild Force. Wildcats and Cyber Force. I mean, I'm telling you, if you shuffled those covers together, you would have a hard time not thinking it was the same series. Mm-hmm. Uh, the looks are very, very close. I'm sure. I mean, look, they were all sort of X. A lot of these characters are X-Men derivative, and they both drew X-Men for a long time and X-Men related characters, right? So that's going to happen. You know, you get your Lady Death Strikes and your Wolverine. Everybody's got spikes and claws, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense. The X-Men were the most imagey Marvel characters that then spun these guys into fandom to become image right so mm-hmm. it, it makes sense that those guys you know Todd McFarlane didn't do as much X-Men Eric Larson didn't do as much X-Men it was those two guys right right so I, I mean it makes some sense but but really I'm telling you if you shuffled those fucking covers together you'd have a hard time convincing a normal person that they were not the same series right right and again um, they're, they're still coming out of homage studios I don't know at what point Sylvester physically left the building and did something else but you got two X-Men artists with some Similar styles, both doing rip-off X-Men teams with similar looks to them and similar power sets, and then they're having a crossover <laughs> together. Shit's going right. to get confusing, man. Wow, interesting. Okay. Well, I, one I thing never that got me put too, it in that context before. One thing that got me, too, is, like I, I've said in the past, I did not like Sylvester on X-Men. That was when I started losing interest because while he had a nice style, he wasn't doing the, like, the hardcore, super-rendered artwork when he was doing X-Men, or at least not until toward the end of his time on X-Men. So, so he wasn't as flashy and, and I didn't gravitate to his style the way that it did John Romita and I also had marked a period where I didn't like where the X-Men were going as a franchise anyway but one of the things that happened too is this was in a time period where they, some of these Baxter format miniseries were hitting from Marvel in the, the mid 80s one of them was Mephisto Versus which had the fucking badass John Bolton cover and I bought you know me and my brother combined bought all the issues of that miniseries right you had X-Men versus the Fantastic Four which was a weird thing and I think John Balknov did that one and again I think my brother ended up buying most of those. That's how I ended up reading those. But one that I actually was into, and I think I bought most, if not all the issues myself, was X-Men versus the Avengers. And before he took over X-Men, that was, I think, his audition for the book. And I honestly think, to some degree, Mark Silvestri missed his calling because he's so good at drawing the Avengers, particularly Captain America, and and also uh, She-Hulk. He was perfect artist for She-Hulk. I feel like he would have been a good guy to give the Avengers book a renaissance in the late 80s. And he's so much better at drawing those more stoic heroes heroic 
heroes. I'm not saying he's better than Jim Lee, but I feel like he's better suited to that given his obvious huge John Buscema influence. He's better at drawing those guys than he is at drawing the X-Men. I think he's really good at drawing Wolverine. And I think uh, the Mohawk Storm he was good at drawing. And I don't really love most of the rest of his, his takes on the X-Men. Where his Avengers were so strong, I really wish he'd done that book instead. And then we could have had the Avengers version of this style versus the X-Men version of this style long form. And instead it's both these guys competing within the same pool and Sylvester seeming to consistently lose by going up against Jim Lee. You know, and I, I want to say while we were talk, just now talking, I was searching through and I thought I saw that Mark Silvestri did something with the Avengers, but I could be wrong. Yeah, X-Men versus but, Avengers. No, I mean the Avengers movie. Oh. Hmm. That, but that I could be wrong. Don't don't hold me to that. Continue, continue. What do you think though? Do you have a preference between those two artists? I Look, I want to not like Jim Lee because he kind of became synonymous with, you, you know, you couldn't even say you liked Jack Kirby in the 90s because if you compared, Jer- well, look, have you seen Jim Lee? Right? You know, and mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. But man, I'm telling you, even just clicking through some of this Wildcat stuff, Jim Lee fucking rocks, dude. It's <laughs> just, just so good. I, I, I'm like, I'm sorry, especially when you compare it to a lot of the image stuff that we've looked at that looks just like complete dog trash. <laughs> these All these shitty, you know, image studios guys and or uh, they're just, it's just all bad. And uh, he's just so good. I, I got nothing against Mark Silvestri. Mark Silvestri, I think, is honestly because he's so far. All these guys are so much in Jim Lee's shadow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Silvestri is super underrated, but Jim Lee is just way superior. Uh, he's he's fucking great. I mean, I'm the, the reputation is earned as much as I want to hate on the dude for writing muty books or from for drawing muty books back in the day um, and him never drawing an Avengers character to like save his life except for Captain America one time and it was mm-hmm. like insane. But it's right? so it's such a good Captain America though. But man. it's so fucking good, dude. Yeah. And I'm telling you, you go I back have to the fucking player. T-shirt. Yeah, you know, that's the that's one of the cap T-shirts I have. Is that fucking splash page from Uncanny X-Men? You go back and look at that Punisher stuff. Mm-hmm. It's it's fantastic. It's so good. And he was really rough back then too. And it's still fantastic. Uh, he, he's it, I, I'm sorry. Like it's not it, it's just it's not me. fair, right? It's just and look, fair. and now today I haven't honestly like like I said I just googled that Batman uh, um, Joker stuff. That stuff looks more interesting than some of the stuff we've seen Jim do Jim do lately. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking peak for peak, Jim Lee of his peak is. I know people want to say, oh, you know, it's kind of boring. They're just like posed action figures or whatever. I, if you say so. Um, I think some of that's uh, hindsight, trying to judge him or whatever. But uh, I mean, Jim Lee's an art god. And I said as somebody who literally has disdain for almost every project he's ever worked on. <laughs> uh, he's incredible. I remember there, there was a shot in Wizard magazine where he was. I don't, I don't even know what the context was, but he just drew the Hulk with an India ink brush. That was it. And it was like a tiny little like two and a half by two and a half square on like a Jim Lee sketchbook and that India inked Hulk that was almost all sh- working in negative space was amazing where I would have given anything to see him do a like black and white Hulk book like that's how and he probably did it in about you know three minutes mm-hmm. if if not like 45 seconds it, it was it's incredible the, the dude's outrageous uh, it, not fair to compare in my opinion but I'm and look Mark Savage never, never did anything I did either like you said um, I, I wish he would have done some Avengers stuff and maybe my my tone would be changed a little bit but uh, yeah, sorry Jim it's Jim Lee I apologize yeah. I really like the shit on Mark yeah. Silvestri podcast, but and he's not. It's not. It's not fair to him. But the you know, I really like Mark Silvestri's Captain America and X Men Avengers. I really like his She Hulk, I, especially because this would have been in a time period when I think Kieran Dwyer was doing the book, and it just there wouldn't have been any competition there. The thing of it is, is there was a period of time when Jim Lee was my favorite comic book artist working. There's never been a time when Mark Silvestri was my favorite. Uh, yeah. I think that when Mark Silvestri was at his peak of his powers, which is around this time period, I think that probably Cyber Force is the best work he 
ever did in comics. And so he's comparable with Jim Lee, but he doesn't surpass Jim Lee. Or or best, he surpasses him on a panel-by-panel basis, but not overall. And of course, he was taking a lot longer and knowing he was going to be compared directly, it was taking him, you know, an extra month that Jim Lee wasn't taking to get his parts of the crossover out to get at that level. I do think that Sylvester has done some fantastic work. Uh, I still love this one pinup he did of Batman for the black and white miniseries, the original one. He's done some really excellent work, but there was also long periods of time where I just actively was put off by his work because I didn't like what he was drawing or how he was drawing it. And I respect him. I respect that he's probably, again, the best in terms of structure, in terms of storytelling, probably the best artist that image of the founders, but he's never been my favorite. And I think he does a really good job here. I think it's probably, again, the best work of his career. And I'm still like, yeah, but Jim Lee though. You know, it's just like, it's yeah. Jim Lee's one of the greatest, even though I'm terribly bored with Jim Lee at this point. I, I'm just, I'm, he's so predictable at this point. I'm more interested in see what Mark Silvestri would do in 2023 versus what Jim Lee would do with anything given thing. But again, Jim Lee was doing those COVID drawings where he was doing, I think, a drawing a day for charity or something like, or maybe Hero Initiative or just like a, some sort of a pool for people that were out of work. I don't remember what it was for, but those individual images were really striking, really strong. Almost all of them were cover quality. I, it's just not fair, but I, yeah, I have to give it to Jim Lee too. You know, even, even though I think that Mark Silvestri is more interesting today, more unpredictable today, still prime for prime there's no competition if anybody has an old wizard magazine and knows what the fuck i'm talking about can find i, I tried googling it and it's not it's not in yeah. there but uh man i would love to see that again to see if that hulk uh well, that actually, india, brushed india ink hulk we were talking about the internet archive earlier today most of the early issues of wizard up through about the 30s or 40s are on the internet archive scanned so really? if you really got a bug you could go digging around for that it was useful to me when i was trying to find rankings for like the dark horse alien stuff because they still had the top 100 in wizard so yeah, I know that they're there, because or at least they were there very recently. Okay, I may uh, click through when we continue to talk. <laughs> hey everyone, this is Mark Silvestri, the owner of Top Cop Productions and one of the founding members of Image Comics. And guess what? We're bringing back the '90s because we are bringing back Cyberforce, the original series, in a massive volume, 664 pages of Cyberforce love from the '90s remastered it's going to be brilliant it's going to be beautiful you're going to love it if you've never seen this before check this out because it's just a it's a time capsule for those fun days and if you remember the old days of cyberforce you've got to have this for your collection just like the 90s everything was bigger and badder back in the day it collects cyberforce zero the original 10 minute war miniseries the killer instinct crossover with wildcats the ongoing series issues 1 through 13 and origins 1 Cyberblade striker cyberforce annual I mean, you've got some of the biggest and best names from the 90s. You got Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, you got Mike Turner, Dave Fence, you know, Joe Chido, Scott Williams. But we have a lot of art by Mark Silvestri. Oh, that guy. Yeah. Who's, where's he? Yeah. Uh, yep. Me. Uh, doing all the big stuff of the 90s. And there's a lot of it. Giant rip claw, double page spreads. Because everything was big in the 90s. It even includes the quadruple fold out pages that Jim Lee did with our crossover with Wildcats. So it's very, very cool. The other thing I'm really excited about for this is uh, we're reprinting the Cyberforce number one as a special 30th anniversary commemorative edition, uh, which will have an interview in the back with some of the original creators, including Mark. And uh, it should be a really cool project. I'm excited for this. Uh, Again, thank you to all the fans for the past 30 years of just awesome love uh, for the characters that we create and the worlds that we create. 
Walt Simonson drew Cyberforce number zero, did not really do anything substantial for Image again as an artist. He does eventually go on to write the Weapon Zero series for Top Cow. So obviously there's a connection there at least to the, the Image founders and, and all that kind of good stuff. That, but apparently his way in was through Mark Silvestri. And if you read Cyberforce number zero, Sylvester, Mark Silvestri makes a point of, of giving an introduction. Early in my comics career, I was blown away by the work of three individuals, Jack Kirby, John Buscema, and Walter Simonson. No one influenced my desire to get into the comic scene more than these men, especially the third guy. Walt's sense of the dynamic and his incredible storytelling amazes me to this day. From the first time I saw his work on the Manhunter series, all the way through his stellar work on Star Slammers, Star Wars, and Thor, just to name a select few, it always amazed me how he put his personal stamp on everything. And now after all this time, I can safely say that one of the highlights of my career, along with starting a creator-owned company, was the day that Walter agreed to work with me on the book that you now hold in your hands. Well, I hope everyone has as much fun reading it as I did. Thanks, Walter, and hopefully we can do this again real soon. So, given that this is one of the only opportunities we'll probably have to discuss Walt Simonson, I don't anticipate going into the Thor comics or the X-Force, I mean, I'm sorry, X-Factor comics stuff. Like, do you have an opinion on Walt Simonson? Did you really have that much exposure to him? I think Walt Simonson is, like, criminally underrated. And hearing you read that statement from uh, Mark Silvestri, I see the influence on Mark Silvestri from Walt Simonson because Simonson does a lot of that hat shit big time. Like, like he would really relate, especially the, the metallic stuff. So that's that's kind of weird. I guess I never really thought of that before until we're talking about it now. But I, I can totally I can totally see that. Uh, I, I've I've always loved Walt Simonson, always. So I but he never really did anything outside of Robocop versus Terminator or whatever that he did that I picked up off the newsstand. I never picked up any of his Ragnarok Thor stuff. I'm not saying I don't have some of it sprinkled in my collection. I think he may have done some random Avengers stuff that I've got. But um, I man, I love his stuff. And I, I follow him on Twitter to this day. And anytime he posts anything that he's drawn, it's still fucking amazing. So huge Walt Simonson guy. I think the dude's dude's great. I just have never really operated in his circles. Were there any characters, you know, looking at the two different groups, especially drawn by the two different artists, were there any characters that look better drawn by their somebody besides their creator? I mean, don't all of the X-Men kind of look better by someone else just because they've got, or are we talking about specifically Cyber Force versus Wildcats? Correct. I don't know if I've seen enough. I, I, I would say I am not qualified to answer. Mm-hmm. Not qualified to answer. I, I would say I that generally... I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever seen Cyber Force drawn by... I know you're telling me that Cyber Force Zero was drawn by Walt Simonson. Bro, I do not know enough about that issue to compare to any other Cyber Force stuff. Man, I mean, and Wildcat's at Jim Lee at kind of his peak, so I don't imagine anyone else could have like a more interesting take on those characters. But I guess they've got a long career of publication that has moved beyond my knowledge, so it's possible if you had a... Well, mostly I was talking about Sylvester versus Lee, given the, the nature of the crossover. It is interesting, though, because I do still think that ultimately Mark Silvestri does more shiny metal where Walt Simonson is much more of that brush steel look and I do think that works pretty well for those characters that's a that's makes them a little bit more interesting a little more rugged I don't know that I like them better as drawn by Walt Simonson because I do like that Silvestri style but it is interesting and some of the characters I think do work especially well under Walt Simonson whereas I think Walt Simonson drawing the Wildcats would suck but I think during Cyberforce he that his that his style works well for that all the cybernetics and yeah, like like I, I I googled it and there's a cool black and white splash page. I don't know if this is like the original art of it, but he's got a striker pointing all three guns at the fucking screen, and it looks pretty cool, dude. Like that looks pretty rad. And then as far as the influence, I think that the Bushima is so 
strong on Sylvester. That it's always going to be Sylvester. It's always going to be Bushima plus somebody else that makes Sylvester. That's such the baseline. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why he's to me less interesting than a Jim Lee. Because Jim Lee, what's so weird about him is he's got so many fucking influences that he, he just, I, it doesn't make sense to me how many people he managed to incorporate into his style and not have it work, you know, and have it be a distinctive look that's, that's uh, consistent from panel to panel. And yet you can still see fucking John Byrne and Art Adams and Kevin Nolan and Michael Golan and just like all these fucking influence. Blue shit and fucking Sylvester's in there. Big time he's in there. And yet it still comes together where with Sylvester it's very much it's John Buscema. What where is he where does he differentiate himself from John Buscema? And it never occurred to me that Walt Simonson would be in that mix and, until you see it it's like oh yeah okay I can kind of see it now but it wouldn't have entered my mind because the Buscema influence is just so prevalent. Oh and I, and I just realized that the black and white picture I'm looking at I guess that the Cyber Force Zero was a fold out cover or was a front and back yeah like, you know, open it, was, it up it, yeah wrap around yeah it was a wrap around cover so that's what it, it's in black and white it looks way better in black and white than whatever cheesy colors they used <laughs> but that's my opinion of course so that's the weird thing I like his art style I, I like like Fryhold loves his Thor and he has a bunch of his Thor and it's very Kirby-esque and you know Frog Thor is amazing Um, I like to look at it but I, I've tried to read his shit and I just can't man it's, yeah. it's bad like the well Thor. okay so but what about it is bad would you say <sighs> Because, like, he did that long run on X-Factor, and you being more of an X guy... I'm I, sure I did like X-Factor. I mean, I mean, I guess maybe... I, okay, so his X-Factor stuff was pretty good. I mean, That's, you love Apocalypse, and he yeah. co-created... Well, he didn't co-create Apocalypse. Or did he? Did he design the character? Maybe design. Yeah, because I know he didn't draw the first appearance, but he might have helped design it, I would think. I think it's definitely a, a, a Simon That's like issue design. eight, right? Six, didn't Leighton didn't have some... Uh... Well, what happened... Leighton started X-Factor, and he, my understanding is he got fired from X-Factor. Like, like, I don't know, I think Jim Shooter didn't like what he was doing or something. I think he po- he posted some of the story of okay. how Apocalypse, I think it was when, oh, that, when the movie came out. He, well, you know what it, well, you know what it was? He was going to actually reveal that the mastermind behind all the stuff that was going on in the early issues of X-Factor was the owl. And people were like, the fucking owl? Yeah, You're fired. Yeah, and, that, and they came with Apocalypse. Um, no, 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 no. I mean, like, Apocalypse is one of my favorite villains. Yeah. Uh, I do like his art. Like I said, I do like his art style. Like, yeah. I love when he does those big dragons, Fing Fang Foom and oh, shit like yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Or the, the, the Midgard Serpent, I think is who you're Midgard Serpent? Thor. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff looks great. I mean, I liked his Thor. I like his Thor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm not going to judge his writing because I'm not a, you know, he, we're not talking about his writing. His art style is great, dude, but it's very Car- Kirby esque, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah. Certainly he borrowed, like, especially the bigness of the figure. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, but see, I'm, I'm curious to drill down to this a little bit because I'm not a huge Walt Simonson guy either. Like, I like illustrations by him. I like covers and I like his takes on certain characters mm-hmm. and stuff. But something about his storytelling style just doesn't pull me in. Yeah. I don't feel like reading 22 pages of, of a story drawn by Walt Simonson most of the time. It has to be a pretty particular story. And that was less the case earlier in his career when he was a little bit more of a straightforward mainstream artist. But he has a very, very strong design aesthetic. And that carries over into the entire page. He designs his pages very heavily. And I don't enjoy his storytelling. I respect his design sense, but I don't really enjoy his storytelling. It doesn't draw me in. I don't want to go from panel to panel the way he draws the panels, the way he designs the panels. It just doesn't suck me in as a story. I just like the spot illustration. But one of the things that was interesting, I never considered it before until I started going over some of the Cyberforce stuff. Walt Simonson draws Cyberforce number zero, and I can see how strong of an influence Simonson is on Mark Silvestri. And I do not see any Walt Simonson and Jim Lee. I just don't think there's anything mm-hmm. in common there between the two of them. I think that like you see a lot of uh, Kevin Nolan in Jim Lee, and Kevin Nolan was doing the covers for Alpha Flight during Jim Lee's run. And I think that that imprinted upon Jim Lee. Plus, he might have just been a fan before then. I feel like Mark Silvestri draws 
draws women that resemble Kevin Nolan. But I feel like what he's doing is he's looking at Jim Lee's take on Kevin Nolan, and that's from which where he just gets some of his inspiration. But also, Jim Lee, I think, borrowed from Mark Silvestri's Babes as well, because there was just a lot of crossover between how those two are drawn. But I think that part of why most people consider Jim Lee's women sexier than Mark Silvestri's is because he has more of the Kevin Nolan influence in his work than, whereas I don't think and Mark Kevin Silvestri Nolan does more of a kind of a cheesecake. Yeah, he's, he's female, a little bit more of a yeah. cheesecake. Well, but they both are, really. Oh, no, but his female characters look fantastic. I mean, mm-hmm. the, uh, what is it, the, uh, he, like when he does Fire and Ice and shit like that mm-hmm. in the uh, International JLA, whatever. Oh, that's McGuire. Oh, McGuire. I'm, I'm, I'm talking sorry, about I'm Nolan. Sorry. Nolan is, um, although McGuire does some cheesecake stuff, too. No, no, he, actually, no, he actually did a lot of stuff for Penthouse Comics. Yeah, Nolan was like, when he did Superman, Actually, right? both Nolan and McGuire worked for Penthouse Comics. But Nolan does Superman, right? He did some Superman stuff? Uh, he's inked Superman. I don't think he's drawn him that often. He inked some of Dan Jurgens' stuff and, and uh, assimilated it in a heavy way. McGuire, you're right. McGuire does a cheesecake. No, I think... But no. they both do. Because Kevin Nyland did the Cyan feature and Kevin McGuire, I think, did some of the uh, Young Captain Adventure stuff. Mm-hmm. Like Adam Hughes started it in Penthouse Comics and then Jeff Johnson, I think, did some of them and Kevin McGuire definitely did some of them at the same time that Kevin Mag- Nevin, no, Kevin Nolan was doing Cyan and then it, that feature got taken over by um, Neil Adams' kid, Joel Adams. Okay. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> Fuck the fact that you know that did both my mind. <laughs> well, especially because you're the one who collected Penthouse uh, Comics. Uh, and I just do... Well, I collected Penthouse comics, but I mean, they had Hustler such, comics. Yeah. Well, Hustler uh, comics wasn't worth a shit, but, oh, but there was, was such fucking... a murderer's row of artists. Like Dave Johnson was regularly in Penthouse comics, and I know you're. Lo- we both yeah. love Dave, Dave yeah. Johnson. Um. So anyway, what I got here is I'm when are we starting that podcast? Huh? <laughs> when are we starting the that Penthouse podcast? comics podcast? We could do it. It only lasted uh, what, like twelve issues, thirteen issues, dude, thirty-six issues, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Oh, then I don't own them all. Then I thought. Yeah. Well, not just that. They also had the men's adventure comics, a spinoff of of Penthouse. So yeah, those are those are good forty some. 50 some odd issues out there. I'm going to start looking for those now. Uh, So anyway, what I got here is the hardcover, the complete Cyberforce Volume 1. I read a good chunk of this on my cruise because I knew I would not have internet for long periods of time. I'm shocked that exists. Right. Did you not? Well, this is part of the third. At any time, did you want to jump over the balcony? Nah, nah. Well, actually, I read that in bed uh, because I I really wasn't. At any time, did you get, wait a minute, at any time, did you get the pages to slowly start running up the train tracks? Uh, Right. I tried to give myself a lethal paper cut. No, it wasn't that bad. And I read in, in smaller portions. Um, no, the problem was on on the back of the boat. There's a lot of flies. You know, and they kind of it's weird. You wouldn't think that a boat would have flies, but no, there, there were flies, and it kind of got irritating. Think uh, they might have even been the biting kind or something. Oh I remember, shit! Like, yeah, so yeah, I, 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 sometimes they have mosquitoes. I understand too. So yeah. So anyway, so I read this, and because I read this, I got to inflict this on people because I took handwritten notes. Uh, so let me see how much of this stuff I can remember. So Cyber Force Number Zero, uh, which came out between the miniseries and the ongoing series, uh, written by Eric and Mark Silver. Vestry, drawn by Walt Simonson. Wait a minute, I, I got one question. So why the fuck did I read Wildcats? Because there's a crossover. Killer oh, Instinct. You asshole. Yeah. So and then of course the lettering was by John Workman, one of the, the I would say the greatest letterer in the history of comic book, John can, Workman. Can, can I just uh, hand sure. this to Mr. Fix it and sure. say just keep in mind what you said about you think this guy's better than Jim Lee. And I'm gonna hand this over to you to flip yeah. through. A uh, Joe Chodo or sorry, Joe Chido did the coloring. So it was a you know pretty that's fantastic a, presentation. Yeah, I was gonna say that's uh, uh so the advanced tactical weapons research and development facility of the American International Dynamic Corporation was attacked. It's the site of Cyberforce versus Shock Troop. Prior, this is taking place prior to 10 Men of Men number one. So it's not only the zero of the ongoing series, it's also kind of the zero of the miniseries. It includes new member Ace of Blades, who was a very Neil Adam looking character, got uh, one of those masks that's a tied on bandana thingy. Dude, uh, hold on. Fuck you, dude. The chick with the skull, golden skull. Fucking dope as yeah, shit, Killjoy dude. Killjoy is fucking, fucking cool. dope, yeah. dude. Yeah, she's great. Jim Lee couldn't draw that on his best day. 
That is pretty badass, admittedly. Plus, hold on, real quick. And I just want to point this out too. This villain right here has a fucking badass design, dude. It's like Mystique. Like I would imagine Mystique. Oh yeah, Mother May I. It looks May really May cool. Yeah, she does look really cool. Dope as fuck. Mic drop. What? Although admit no. she also she is Mystique though. Yeah, I know. I so it's say, like I, like, I looked at her. Like, uh, I was like, dude, a lot of these characters, I'm like, and this is what they would be reimagined. Like, yeah, as this, this is the, they, nobody could draw her like Dave Cockrum. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So yeah, Killjoy dude is fuck dude. That is fuck. Yeah, I want. She's you know grab, what, yeah. Fuck Harley Quinn. I want Killjoy yeah, tattooed yeah, on my arm. They, they should have canceled Cyber Forces out of Killjoy series, didn't they? Uh, no, no, they never did Killjoy series. Striker and Ace are injured by grenades. They're sent to a nearby hospital. Enter Doctor Corbin, who has white hair and a mustache. Doctor Corbin is like the the main guy who's going to help build up Cyber Force. Now he's working for the Cyber Data at this time, but he's sort of like a saboteur. This time, the Ace of Blades. It's it's the present day with Doctor Corbin. But we flash back seven years, uh, about seven years ago. The Shocks are the special hazardous Operation Cyborgs. The membership at this time is Misery, a new character, redhead with the uh, bleeding eyes that are totally a ripoff of Dawn from Joe Lindsay's Christ for Dawn, Striker, Heatwave, Killjoy, Megawatt, Psyblade, Psychotron, and new recruit member Warblade. They do make a reference to Ripclaw, so he's apparently around, but he's a, not a member of the Shock, so maybe he was already in Cyberforce or something by this point. But we established that Warblade, before he was in the Wildcats, was part of the Shock. Mm -hmm. Striker has a fractured skull after being shot and falling three stories. He's saved by unauthorized emergency surgery ordered by Dr. Corbin at William Casey Memorial Hospital, secretly supported by Cyberdata. It raises suspicions of Dr. Herzog, who's a bald guy with glasses. You have the overly aggressive heat wave pushed to assail lousy, non-mutant scum by misery. A Corbin stop heat wave then uses episode to woo Cyblade. So basically Corbin is slowly working his way through the different shocks, trying to help them get deprogrammed from being like hyper aggressive, crazy people. John McNally and his son Chip explained Minesweep and Brain Boy. I, I wrote these notes on a ship probably while drinking. So, uh, Cyblade scheduled for final treatment, a CD cops raid, cybernetic operations for protection and security. Cyblade escapes unseen with Corbin's special device. So basically, all these guys have this chip implanted in their brains that turn them into like fascist assholes by Cyberdata. And Corbin's going in there and getting the chips out and helping them to become normal again and then trying to recruit them for Cyberforce to create this insurgent force against Cyberdata. One week later, Shock Troop ambushed by Stormwatch. Yeah, this was another tie in. I forgot about that. You've got Backlash, Flashpoint, and Nautica. They dominate three to five. Even though there's only three of them, they totally wipe out the Shocks like they're bitches. Corbin's gizmo shuts down Heatwave's brain box. So basically, he can remote control shut down the thing that's bucking with uh, these people dry, make, making the nuts as the brain boxes. So Stormwatch plus two liberated Striker, Corbin, Chip. There's something about McNally drowning in my notes. Uh, Ace of Blaze decides to retire. You're right, so we're back to the present day after the Stormwatch interaction. Say Ace of Blaze wants to retire, but he's killed by a Cyberdata strike. One of the ways that I wanted to be able to fill things out for this episode, because, you know, be doing a bunch of fucking solo recapping, is I wanted to actually literally pit these guys together. I've been I've been avoiding, you know, especially Fix It keeps wanting to pit these guys against one another. I wanted to save it for when I knew they were doing a story about that. So, to the degree you're familiar with either of these franchises, because you're not a big Wildcats guy, you're not a big Cyberforce guy, but you have at least some osmotic relationship to them, just from being in comics in that time period. And the fact these guys are so similar. So, I wanted to pit Heatwave versus Spartan. Who do you think is the better character, got the better powers, that kind of thing? Give me a second to Google so I can look at some fucking people here. Yeah, you definitely want to get that T 
team shot. Spartan is just fucking robot. Heat wave. Mm. Either way. It's got to be Spartan. I feel like a, a Spartan is the, uh, I don't use the word iconic. None of these characters are fucking iconic. But I feel like, I mean, like, I feel like if you would have asked me the names of these characters and said, hey, was that Cyber Force or Wildcats? I probably couldn't tell you with real, like, certainty. But I, looking at the teams, I'm definitely more familiar with the Wildcats characters. Yeah. Well, Spartan's got that red, white, and blue. So as you say, it's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. he's not designed to be a patriotic character, but it's those colors that are associated with patriotic characters that work, that please very well in comics. Where I think Heat Wave has sort of like secondary colors and he's got the brown hair, where Spartan's got the blonde hair. And he just feels a little bit like the off brand, you know, like Diet Spartan to some degree. Diet Spartan, good lord. <laughs> For a little extra color, Heat Wave's design, Spartan's design, besides being against each other, do you think these are good character designs or, or, or are they? I don't think to Spartan's figure? bad. Yeah. I don't think Spartan's bad. Um, I mean, it's not. Heat Wave is so similar to Spartan that it's like if you like the Spartan design, you kind of by default at least halfway yeah. think that Heat Wave's design is decent because there's just so much in common. I like the big fucking Blade Runner collar the Spartan had, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Where is that shitty? Fo- I had a good team photo up and now it's like gone. Yeah. I don't know what it is about Spartan's costume. I think it was Cyber Force, and I understand they're cyber, but there's just a lot of metal arms. Mm-hmm. They've all got the metal banded gloves or metal banded arms. So Heat Wave's got the metal arms, just like Striker has three metal arms. Uh, it gets a little, it's a little annoying. Well, She's like, wearing like a visually, cyber suit sort of thing. It's like, eh. It's better than the X-Men running around in the Bubblebee costumes to give them a sense of being a team, like uniting them all. But again, when everybody's cyber, then it's like, there's no distinction. So it, it just feels like samey, samey. Yeah, yeah. Cyblade yeah. versus Voodoo. And it's PSI Blade, right? No, no, no. no because she she's cybernetic, therefore it's a cyblade. Uh. Even though she is also somebody who does, she does the same thing as well. Literally, so Psylocke's cyblade is called cyblade PSI. But yeah, he decided yep. since he was one of the people. Who, and the funny thing, Jim Lee came up with that design too. I don't know that he they, she used the cyblade when she had the armor that Mark Silvestri designed, but he still took the outright name of cyblade and gave it to another character, but it turned it into CY Blade. I, I'm gonna go Voodoo, uh, and it has to do with that panel I referenced earlier from uh, Travis. <laughs> Well, and also, like, why? Wh- I'm trying to think of, oh, oh, I know what I was going to do. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Also, you, you've got the purple and yellow costume. You've got the stripper costume. Does it make a difference or does she beat Cyblade either way? I think she beats her either way. Mm-hmm. I really wish they had some more color in Cyblade's suit or had some more skin, but she just seems, again, like, with, she's Psylocke with orthopedic aids or something, you know, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then what do you think about the Voodoo's costume designs? <sighs> Let me see. See the different costumes the now. Well. Bring them up. That is not a specific enough search. Um, so let me see. She had the one with like the fur boots, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to go purple bathing suit with the fur boots with the weird thigh straps. What was mm-hmm. that all about? I don't know. What is holding these things up? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it's weird because her name is Voodoo. And so certainly running around with the more paganistic costume feels a little bit more Voodoo. The purple and yellow doesn't say anything. It's just a superhero team costume, right? It's not even a yeah. solo costume. That's exactly the sort of thing you would be wearing and other people would be wearing matching suits. But she's just the one who has 
has the only one that should be a matching team suit. I have that action figure because again, that costume is made specifically for the cartoon. The action figures were based on that. I like looking at the purple and yellow costume more. And I think that's an interesting combination of colors. I know it's like peanut butter and jelly, but it kind of works for her. She could manage to pull it off, but it doesn't say anything I mean, about being could, a voodoo. It could, be a, it could be a New Orleans thing, the purple and yellow. I mean, that could be. You think that that's could, what it is? Yeah, it could be. Okay. Could be. But like you say, the voodoo, it doesn't say anything about who she is. Where the voodoo costume, the original one, the stripper outfit does, but it's also ridiculous and impractical. So they're both not my favorite looks for the character, but I do tend to favor the purple and yellow, but recognizing that that if to the degree that any of these characters are iconic, that look is more iconic with the boots, the furry boots. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm going to go with the purple and yellow is probably a Louisiana. That's a good catch. Thing. You would, you would, as a sports person, you would catch that more than I would, clearly. Well, I mean, I hadn't thought about it till literally this moment. <laughs> so I'm a little late to the game if that's the case. <laughs> well, uh, but how much have you ever thought about long. voodoo anyway? Uh, this is also probably the most I've thought. Well, I don't know when I found that issue with the, anyway, uh, continue. Is Sideblades look even good? Like, it, like beyond just like, how does it compare? Is it even a good look for a character at all? I really don't think it is. I think it's, it doesn't no. really make a lot of sense to me. No, I, I don't, I don't know what's going on with it. I kind of wish he'd stolen his Psylocke armor back. And at least that would be somewhat more sure interesting visually. It's just so yeah. generic bad girl look. Like there were so many dozens of characters were basically had the same look as Psyblade. It doesn't even have the weird colors, mm-hmm. like a purple and yellow to yeah. set it apart. I mean, even without furry boots and the crotch cape thing or whatever they fucking call that thing. Yeah, I, I don't know what I don't know what's going on here. Cut the shitty striker story from image number zero in my hardcover. We discussed that during our image zero issue, so we don't have to worry about that. So then a quick 10 minute reward recap takes place. Cyberforce includes the members in the modern day. Striker, Heatwave, Cyblade, Ripclaw, Impact, Chip, Timmy, and CC the cat, the robot cat. You've got, I think it's a senator, Perry Bluestone, who was like the guy who's trying to represent the mutants. You've got him as a New York City mayoral candidate. The Mutant Liberation Army, led by Mother May I, strikes against him. Cyberdata is run by Saburo Kimata, who's the CEO in charge of North American security. <clears throat> I got a note here that says Zadrock. I don't remember what that means anymore. It's uh, This cruise was a long time ago. Tech Knights in Tokyo are, are referenced. Uh, the Blood Squad in Bangkok is referenced. A Megasoft Research and Development Center is referenced. That's where these discs come from that everybody's chasing after in their original miniseries. You've got the Mercenaries, Splitzkrieg, who's a Nazi guy, Wildfire and Slam. They're the guys who end up capturing Velocity and Chip and getting their hands on the disc for a period of time there. You got the FBI uh, recruiting Striker to help them infiltrate the Mutant Liberation Front. You've got Pitt turning up at one point and, and sort of being recruited by the mercenary guys a little bit. You've got the Red Bay Housing Project, which I think is where they were laying low for a period of time there. You've got Jessica Talkwell kidnapped by Malone. So Malone was this fucked up mutant guy, bad face. Jessica Talkwell is, of course, the Asian reporter from the Spawn comic book. Mother May Eyes, the Sentinel of Madness is chronicled. She has her trice with Stryker. She spurns Kimoto, which makes him all pissed off. Ties her into the origins of Velocity and Ballistic. She turns out that she's their mother. Ballistic has still got the brain box, making her be a bad guy. Velocity has managed to avoid the brain box so far with the help of Cyberforce and probably the doctor guy. Art closing up and studio help embellishment. Oh yeah, I, th- I think that homage, uh, the first miniseries I think was done while Sylvester was still at homage. And I think there was some talk about how there were other people that were helping to finish up the miniseries besides Sylvester, like helping to finish up the pages and stuff. Might be the same case with Jim Lee, I don't know. Striker versus Grifter, which isn't quite there. fair because Striker is clearly cable, not, and, and the Grifter is kind of weird because he's not quite Gambit and, Gambit, and he's yeah. definitely and he's not Wolverine and he's not the Punisher so it's kind of a, but they're both the gun guys who will sometimes wear trench coats and shit so they're both blonde guys that's that's my rationale anyway so Striker versus Grifter. Yeah, so he, he's he's Gambit-reen 
<laughs> he's like a mix of the two. A uh, striker, dude. Fucking three arms on one side, dude. That's dope. Dude got three arms on one side. Grifter just has a mask that hangs. I, I mean, I think you got to go Grifter because I feel like he, of all these team guys, ended up getting the most run. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he had the most Wolverine slash Gambit of a uh, comic career arc where he was actually able to be spun out into his own series, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think fucking it's straight. He's the, the four arm guy, right? Three arms. He's got uh, two it's, on one side and one on the other side. Two on one. Okay. I think. Are you sure? No, it might be three on one side and one on the other. Yeah, it might be four three arms, on right? one side. Right. They're just yeah, asymmetrical. Yeah. This was image. It had, it had to be three <laughs> arms. Yeah. And that's how you know he's better than Cable because he has two additional fake arms. But when you said striker, I at least got, he popped into my head. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, Heat Wave, man, I whiffed on that dude. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going, I've got to go Grifter, but that that's the most difficult of the decisions thus far. What do you think of Striker des- design? I, like, again, I at least remembered Striker. So I, I want to shit on it for being so extreme. He's got, how do you walk with three arms on one side that are also metal? Mm-hmm. Your equilibrium is going to be all fucked up because you got one skin arm on the on your left. And th- is he left-handed? Is he right-handed? I don't know. I want to know the answer to these questions. It's so, it's so weird. Like, it's legitimately weird. Three arms? I mean, come on. I, I don't even know how this works. I'd be curious, like, uh, was it uh, Del Dracula who was talking about uh, uh, Shadowhawk's helmet? How it's like impossible to draw, and it like literally makes no sense, mm-hmm. right? I, I want to see, I want to see some back angles of of this dude. Like, how does he have three shoulders? It looks like he kind of has three shoulders. Yeah. How does that work? Mm-hmm. How does that? You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, this doesn't make any. Where, where is this tro- shoulder coming off of? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Out of his ribs, or does it come off his back? I, I don't know. Um, does he have multiple spines it, to support this shit? But I do appreciate how weird it is and i and i do think about it so if i'm thinking about it there's something to it yeah and that was actually one of the most off-putting things for me is it never made sense he was obviously broke cable it, it felt like he was again the straight to video cable with the the fucking ponytail and the ridiculous number of arms like trying so hard to out cable cable i it always turned me off and and as part of my commitment to image i decided i wanted to start picking up as many of the image figures as possible particularly the ones that are still owned by the the owners the creators and so i got those uh, Cyberforce minifigs, the, the little figurines. They, they yep, don't move yep. or they barely move. But I go in ahead and got a set of them and the fucking Striker is one of the hardest ones to keep on their fucking feet. You know, I think I have to get bases for them because he just doesn't, it, he doesn't make sense. He, the physics don't make sense. I can't even keep the damn minifigures standing up, you know, much less a human being. So uh, I've always fr- been frustrated by that. And Grifter, I think, looks really cool. I mean, I don't... I was gonna say, Grifter has a legitimately good costume. Mm-hmm. Like, forget, yeah, the trench coat is very Gambit or whatever, but whatever the derivatives are that he's pulling from ah, I'm sorry it works yeah. and it looks cool when he's shooting with guns on both hands yeah. he looks cool yeah. sorry and also the the mask the way it drapes he's got a villain mask so he's yeah. not supposed to have the cool villain mask but he does because he's sort of an anti-hero it sort of works and nobody else that's really known certainly at the level of Griffer's fame nobody else has that so it really sets him apart yeah yeah uh, so, not fair to Stryker no no Stryker. no uh, so Ballistic versus Zealot I gotta go Zealot I, I feel like I'm really like shitting on Cyberforce, but uh, um, I feel like the uh, forget. I don't really remember Zealot's deal, mm-hmm. but uh, I think the costume is better. I think the looks better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, just uh, like with characters and powers and stuff too, does it even matter? Is there enough difference between the two of them for it's even a factor? I don't remember Cyberforce girl's uh, powers. She shoots guns. <laughs> 
Okay. You know, I, I think there's something more yeah. to it, but I think he's just like really fast and shoots guns and, and really accurate, some shit like that. Yeah, I remember like Zella has like a cool. She, her personality is pretty cool, isn't she? Sort of like militant time traveler. Is that my memory? Uh, or is that not the time uh, traveler. It's more like uh, not time she's traveler. she's Electra. If Electra came from Themyscira, so she's she's one of the Amazons. Ah, uh, that's right. But she's a hardcore stabby person. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Stabby Amazon. And, and, and I think she's got some like durability and strength and stuff, but nothing like you know she's not. You wouldn't think of her as a super strong character, but I think she's enhanced. But she has like a code yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. Isn't there something like that? Yeah. She's got a code she lives by or some sort of mantra or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas Blistic, uh, I gotta go. She, she gotta starts go. out as a villain. You don't know if it's because she's got a chip in her or not. And, you know, I, I don't know. It's just like she's supposed to be in Cyber Force, but she spends most of the first year not being in Cyber Force. So I guess she's supposed to be like the anti-hero amongst the anti-heroes. But it, it just never really played for me. Got it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I do think she, her look is among the better ones of, that Cyberforce has. So it's a little bit more of a competition because Zealot's first suit, when she had this close-cropped white hair and stuff, I wasn't super into that. I never liked the dumb things sticking out of her back, all the, the, the weird boomerang weapons she had. Mm-hmm. But then when the series starts and she's got the longer hair and she's got the all-red outfit where she's you know more properly clothed and looked more ready for action, completely blows away ballistic. So. so then we go into the Killer Instinct crossover where you directly have the first issue of Cyber Force and the first return from sabbatical issues of Wildcats by Jim Lee crossing over between one another. Wildcats Covert Action Teams number 5 was released on November 1st, 1993 per Mike's Amazing World of Comics which was a seven and a half month gap from issue number 4. Now of course it had a variety of stop gaps like they put out the trade paperback which included a zero issue that Brett Booth drew. You and I covered the Wildcats special and Wildcats trilogy a while back. I think I mentioned in that episode that unfortunately the special and the last part of the trilogy or the same month as Wildcats number five. So instead of filling up that seven and a half month gap, you just had a glut in the month of November. Relative to the other image books, this came out the same month as Spawn number 15. So we kind of know where that's at. So Zealot convinced Grifter to quit Team 7 and fight Damonite. Pair attack Gamoran Lab. Gamora is an island off the coast of the Philippines. Evil sci-fi anime place. So they, the pair attack Gamoran Lab to prevent the Spartan COS, which is the cybernetic operation system, to be integrated into the Kaizans Bisleys which are biosynthetic entity bodies but obviously in reference to Simon Bisley it's basically the zombie guy, cyborg guys that the Gamorans use you remember those guys from Cybernary right so the Bisleys are used to create hunter killers essentially controlled zombie soldiers used by Kaizan and sold on the black market so not just limited to Gamora and yes unsettled name of an island full of evil people Gamora so you have the four page gatefold spread of Zealot and Grifter killing zombies very gratuitous but a, a good way for Jim Lee to announce, hey, I'm back and I've got a poster for you in your comic book. Enter Dr. Heinrich Richthofen, formerly top dog of Cyriatter's Artificial Life Sciences, now a host body for the Damonite Cabal, joined by Misery. So combo, you've got Damonite, got Misery, who I think is essentially a, a Cyriatter Wildstorm character, or what the hell is the name? He's a, it's a Cyberforce character, okay? So Grifter supposedly was the first man who was able to resist Misery. The Wildcats finally teleport in and Maul becomes the second man to resist misery apparently by becoming too stupid probably by getting gigantic voodoo separates the daemonite and spartan's bioblast slays it spartan downloads all project data and accidentally triggers a self-defense network within the base warblade chooses the parish attacking uh, ex-lover misery over escaping with void there's another four page thread of them fighting and silhouette the base explodes and we're on to cyber force number one here's here's one of the big ones now ripclaw versus warblade the two wolverines <sighs> 
Well, here's a question. Which one is which? <laughs> right? They're the same, dude. You like one better than the other one? Not really. They're the same. I mean, the only cool thing is Ripclaw is Native American, which was pretty cool. And I personally always remember that Warblade has that cool murder tree position he does where mm, like his feet yeah. would spread out and his hands and it's like a murder tree. I, and again, that's, I forgot who was writing that at the time, but that was when, to me, Wildcats got cool. Where like Maul comes from a second second class society or uh, they're seen as second uh, or second um, class citizen, yeah. class citizen and Warblade are like, mach- they're more like assassins and they do all these weird, crazy like yeah. fucking T2 killing sure. shit. Yeah. So Ripclaw versus Warblade, who wins? Yeah, the same. They're the same. They're too much the same. Warblade is the Wildcat, right? Yep. Yeah, his his claws are longer than more T2000, so he gets the blade where Ripclaw yeah. is more clawy, even though his claws are these weird fucking like jointy, like scabbard, you know, scalloped things. And they both got the ponytail, mm-hmm. but I think I like Ripclaw's Widow Peak better. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go Ripclaw. Yeah, I have to agree. Warblade always bugged me because I, I didn't like all the silver. And I like the green hair, but I, he obviously stole that from Gideon from New Mutants. And the, the both mm-hmm. of them stole it from anime and shit. Don't get me wrong. But specifically having the top knot with the long ponytail. I like, oh wait, you know what? Did he? Did Gideon have green hair or he had white hair? I don't remember now. I'm not so sure. Anyway, uh, I, think, it's, I think green. It's a color. I think it's green. Yeah, okay. It's so yeah, so I, I I thought that was a little too on the nose ripping off from another creator. I don't know. It just didn't work as well for me. I didn't like the stupid tubes coming off of the him. The tubes. Shit. That's, that's yeah. a, that, that was a deal red. breaker is the tubes. But also, I just, I really do like the white and red on Ripclaw. I think that looks kind of cool. It, it's it's striking, especially amongst the Cyber Force where they've got so little color. And for him, those bright reds and whites and no cybernetics that you can see, right? Well, his, his, he's got the cybernetic glove thing. Yeah. No, it's got the bands. Yeah. They, they're all about the bands mm. and shit. But, but I like, like you said, I like his facial features. I like that, you know, it's a Native American character, but they were okay with him being like an albino. They didn't feel the need to like, you know, put in your face that he's not another white guy. And they may actually literally make him like albino white, but you can still kind of tell that he's Native American. And it's just, like, I think it's a good look. You know, I, I think it's got a, a very mu- more of a Wolverine quality to it. And if you're going to have a guy who's going to be their Wolverine type, then that quality is going to be beneficial. So I, I like Ripclaw's look. Velocity versus Void, which is getting a little trickier now because we're getting to like the side guys. I think it's worth noting too that Jim Lee originally had a speedster on his team and then when he it turned out that Sylvester was going to do a speedster he intentionally made one of his characters not a speedster to differentiate them more and I don't know if that's got anything to do with Void or if it was another character but yeah th- we're basically just doing the V's at this point because they don't match up as easily on this one they're both chicks yeah I remember Void had she's got a bigger she had a pretty big role in those comic books so at least she was like was very important well but Velocity also- really drives the first miniseries and she's one of the focal characters in Cyber Force too really because okay. the whole thing is that the uh, shocks are trying to capture I like her the green and red oh you like green and red i like the green and red i might uh i don't know jack shit about velocity but i think i might uh i mean i don't know but the full chrome with just the face is kind of cool mm-hmm. too i might go for a draw on this one it is tougher i do like velocity's look it is the green and red is distinctive the only thing that bothers me is because she's an albino and rip claws an albino i guess you kind of connect them through the, the cybernetics and stuff why they're both albinos but i feel like those two characters should have more of a connection than they do since they're it's it's more everybody's got cybernetics okay cool but why are you guys both albinos and you're not connected to one another that's the thing that kind of throws me 
me a little bit. But she's got a decent look. Void, you know, basically she's Silver Surfer with a human face. And so right, it's yeah. kind of cool, but also kind of boring at the same time. You know, it's like, it's cool because you got all the cool chrome shit. But then when you get past that, it's like, but all you have is chrome shit. So yeah, I have a tough time with these two as well. I, I'm also inclined somewhat toward a draw. Uh, I think we should leave it to fix it for a tiebreaker on that one. Cyber Force number one, the ongoing series, came out on November 8th, 1993. So one week after Wildcats, since both of these books are essentially preludes to the Killer Instinct crossover, that was somewhat important. And of course, Cyber Force is trying to launch their ongoing series out of Killer Instinct. So they have to do a little bit of setup just to make sure that if there's any new readers coming on, they're up to date on things. Westchester, New York. This is how much of a ripoff Cyber Force was. Besides the mutants, they're based in Westchester. I guess you can't copyright a physical location in the real world. And this is the thing I always thought was stupid about Cyber Force. So their base is underground beneath Gabby's Gas and Grub. It's 300 feet below. You got the Cyber Force Central Command, aka the Subplex. A velocity trains in the woods with robot for spot on the Cyber Force team. She's attacked by Ripclaw, not intended to be part of her training. Heatwave arrives to stop Ripclaw. In Queens, New York, ballistic drinks and batters. PUA. I don't remember what that means. Striker tries to drag her back to Subplex. Fight ensues. Ballistic weaponizes straws. She actually can throw straws with such velocity that it hurts Striker. Kills an old man. Oh, kicks the old man in the nuts and tells her to leave him alone. Uh, or need, or she, she needs time alone anyway. I think probably Ballista, I mean, uh, Striker probably needs some time alone to arrest his nut. Uh, Ripclaw having recurring dreams about Warblade and Misery and he deserts the Cyber Force team. He's going a little nutty probably because of Misery fucking with him from uh, this. Very like, I hate to say fucking cyberpunk shit, but very like mechanical machine men melded with machine. machine interface. Yeah, so I mean, they, they have that cool look. So do you that, like that, better, Cyberblade or Zealot? I would say Cyberblade just because Zealot is basically just a war. Now, they were all like fucking different aliens that came together on this world and so Maul's a different type and, and Warblade's a different type. So, I mean, it's not really fair to compare them, dude. Like, I think it's design totally design wise. I mean, maybe you, but you've got the cybernetic X Men versus the alien uh, X Men, Christo Christo alien uh, X Men. So then we jump to Wildcats number six. You got weird timing between the crossover issues. The cat MRV Merv ship is damaged and then blown out of the sky by Gamoran spot Viper craft. Maul grows bigger than ever to smash a Viper and grab Void, but his brain shuts down as a result. Spartan simply grabs Voodoo and flies down. Grifter and Zealot grab onto a Viper midair, blow its hatch and with grenades, gun down pilots, and damage controls in process. They survive a crash landing while vaguely re referencing Point Break, the movie. Seriously injured Voodoo hauls Maul, who shrinks before teleporting, being teleported by Void. The cat find remains of base and misery. Warblade protected by energy shield. So he survives. There's a pointless two-page spread. Spartan uses heat signatures to see the past. Like, he can actually see where people were uh, previously but by their heat signature. Yeah. You mean kind of like Guardians of the Galaxy? Okay, sure. Misery cried over Richtofen's body and tried to access Stasis Pod. Grifter shocked by Pod. Drink Spear instead. Jacob Marlowe offers backstory about two years ago. He was tipped by a gnome about Kaizen Gamora and Richtof being possessed. They have the Hadrian 7 prototype. They're afraid that the Hadrians are going to be in mass production and, and Gamora's going to overrun the world and shit. You've got Kaizen Gamora. you got Richtof and Possessed. A mustachioed Marlowe and Jules liberated. Jules is that the lady that works with him sometimes. They liberated the Hadrian. Found a critically wounded Warblade along the way. Misery gathers Warblade and Ripclaw at the Isle of the Dead. Also, Stormwatch in downtown Zodome takes heat off team. So I, that might have been something that was going on in the Stormwatch books. I don't know. So back over to Cyber Force number two. Two years ago, shock troop of Killjoy, Misery, Warblade, and new recruit Ripclaw were at the Isle of the Dead. They seek to retrieve the COS-7, which is the Hadrian 
Spider-Man prototype from Renegade employee Rick Dauphin. They divide into two teams for reasons. Misery prevents communications between the two teams. Killjoy and Ripclaw ambushed by armored hunter killers. Still manage to search overconfident Rick Dauphin, reach overconfident Rick Dauphin and his prototype Mac. Rick Dauphin forced to escape. Warblade deduces Misery's duplicity. Warblade, very good friend, died after unnecessary surgery. Eye for an eye. Misery kills cop C-O-P-S. Warblade, quote unquote, kills her. Bleeding out, Misery controls Ripclaw to stab Warblade. There's a rematch today, assisted by Heatwave. Warblade dips out again. Misery tricks Cyberforce into pursuing the Wildcat. Impact versus Maul. I think this is going to be an easier one. Impact is just a giant colossus. Maul is a Hulk ripoff that gets bigger and dumber and stronger. But his rage doesn't rage on. So they're kind of different. They got, I mean, Maul is cooler because he has a cooler concept where he gets dumber as he gets bigger because his brain doesn't grow. And so it's hard to control him. So that's kind of cool. Where Impact is just a big colossus. There's nothing really good. With, with, with uh, what do you call that? Um, steel wool hair, which always bothered me. Yeah. It's Maul. Yeah, right. Impact, the, the fucking yeah. Jerry curls look terrible, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I feel bad. I feel like this has been shitting on Mark Silvestri podcast. Yeah, but I, I have an easier time with Impact because he's so boring and he's so obviously a wannabe Colossus with a perm and it's just not working at all. Uh, you know, the Impact name, it's funny too, he came out with the name after DC already had their Impact line for the Archie characters. So you're stealing from the Archie characters for your stupid guy? You know, I, I just, not. Nah. And, and Maul isn't necessarily my favorite, but the purple and green works. That's why Hulk had those colors all those years. And it just so happened yeah. that he did that right as Hulk was getting away from the purple pants and looking different. So that helps. So yeah, I gotta, I gotta go with Maul as well. And just a cooler power too, where he gets bigger and bigger and shit. It's more visually interesting. Well, that and like impacts a double ripoff because not only is he Colossus, but then he's got a green costume. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And the it's gray like, and green like, don't go good together. Yeah, it, there's something about it. It look, is just not right. Yeah. Um, he, even more than Striker, he was one of the reasons that I found Cyberforce off-putting. Mm. I'm going to go a little more esoteric here too. This is going to be trickier. You might have to go on the Googles for this. Chip and Timmy versus Lord M. Do you even know who I'm talking about? Fucking who? <laughs> Yeah, this would be the the uh, the technician guy who created his own little boy to be like you know for he created his own synthetic human being who was a little boy, and then they also had the big cat thing. There was a cybernetic cat that hung out with them. So if, if it helps to weigh the scales in Cyberforce's favor, you count the cat too. No, it's 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 lower down. Yeah, given he he might be like one of the more I I guess I don't know if iconics the right right word to use outside of Grifter. He might be the like if I saw that guy. Well, that's the Wildcats guy, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and, and you can also uh, totally see like oh Alpha Fly. Puck, so you decide to have another little person yeah, on your yeah. team, but obviously, and also one of the more high-profile people on the team, but he's your ex-Xavier-type person as well. And it's like, no, he's kind of cool, actually. I, I like Jacob Marlowe. In Wildcast number 7, Spartan versus Striker and Velocity, Cloaking and Tendrils, Maul versus Impact, Grifter versus Heatwave, Breakneck, Cyblade versus Zealot, Zealot versus Ripclaw, Warblade spread. Meanwhile, Halo worries. Weatherman 1 knows Cyberforce, but not Cat, will investigate. Cannon interception denied. They basically can as a member of Stormwatch who wanted to go in they said no Psylocke versus Psyblade right, now the X-Men yeah oh dude I'm gonna go X-Men every time dude that's not fair okay. so Wolverine wins yes it's X-Men across the board dude okay so how about how about we're, we'll throw an Avenger in the mix or at least a, mu- a, a, a mutant Avenger Quicksilver versus uh, Velocity Velocity Quicksilver because he was arrogant he was an how, how about Jubilee versus Velocity see 
my jubilee is not so much the comics as the tv show yeah so the annoying teenager kid was always kind of where then did they try to portray her as that velocity in the comics no like, she, was, she, she was pretty just like normal person yes i would i would say definitely jubilee had more personality colossus versus impact oh, colossus 100 percent, dude hulk versus maul hulk that was stupid right there cable versus striker cable punisher just, I, i'm gonna just help you do marvel cross the board there you go yeah. Pun- I, well, either punisher or gambit versus grifter do either one of them not have a shot against grifter see that's a weird thing because grifter is they never said he was an alien right he wasn't from their planet he was just kind of no no he's from he, team he got six or some shit. yeah he got yeah. he got okay and then so who were the two punisher and who else well i was gonna say, well how about uh, like gambit versus grifter who do you okay, think gambit is, is a mutant he just lights up shit and blows shit up he's got more punisher i always had a special art because he's a sociopath and he's just he's not a hero so he shouldn't even be in well, that group the question though either one of these two marvel characters could they be beaten by grifter okay or? now you're going into weird like they're, they all shoot each other with guns dude like you're you're asking me to determine a uh a mexican standoff okay i'll, I'll go one more four way from with you voodoo versus Jean gray versus nova versus void right. don't worry about it i don't like that anyway there's yeah. obviously me on a ship not doing a very good job uh okay <laughs> one more eric Silvestri versus brandon Choi, which was the worst writer Ooh, brandon Choi, dude that's but you've made me read enough of his shit where i'm just like i'm gonna fucking stab my eyes and and uh design wise or just combat wise who wins in a fight the wildcats or the cyber force dude so as i'm thumbing through your huge book here they have this great image of Cyblade where someone's blasting at her and she's doing a splits in midair to dodge the the blast that shit's just fun dude like i don't remember seeing anything like that in wildcats jump back to cyber force number three heat wave versus spartan grifter versus striker maul versus velocity Cyblade versus injured zealot velocity coda blade warblade dominates rip claw at range until misery with heat wave blasts spartan before shaking loose saves zealot warblade stabs misery unpregnant robot hunter killer rick Toffin had spartans severed arm from miniseries with intent to make invulnerable damonite host bodies two page friends splash by scott williams ballistic epilogue and pagination so yeah so fighting fighty mcfightenstein connections war building blah 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 uh you guys looked at the story what did you think about the artwork between the two books you were going to make a point along those lines i mean at this point in their careers i think jim lee is on like another stratosphere from the stuff in that book if you want to say earlier in the like the early x-men days there was some sort of it might have been a little bit close i think by the time it gets to this uh, to me their careers really delineated i think by by the time you get to this stuff i actually prefer the x-men sylvester stuff to the cyber force stuff whereas jim lee's he was just way up here now, way, tell, way, way tell up me here. why you prefer the sylvester x-men versus cyber Force. i don't know i, th- I think that the uh, the sort of grimy dirtiness of it was a little more charming here he's trying to do this like polished shiny jim lee he's trying to be jim lee and he ain't jim lee he ain't jim lee he's trying to do jim lee stuff when he's not jim lee i don't know again that was jim lee scott williams peak peak stuff every panel was perfect and i'm popping my popping my peas in uh um uh wildcats by the time he gets wild dude shit, wildcats fucking looks fantastic wildcats like, reads like dog shit that's fine the book looks great A- x-men number one all his x-men stuff there you mean that the, his, the rpg amazing. partner isn't as good or as, as a writer as the brother I, we're, we're talking art so that that's yeah. that's where I, the, the art's just another it's I, to me that those are it's the uh definition of what an image everybody thinks an image book is where it's all art no story when really most of these image books are no art no story because they've got studio dudes do most of them the main books like even savage dragon is not the, isn't this like beautiful work of art you know what i mean oh that first miniseries is pretty fucking fantastic outside though. of the but, first miniseries yeah. i mean spawn spawn was pretty good looking savage uh, dragon in, in uh martial law was fucking fantastic kevin o'neill drew that kevin o'neill still yeah, yeah. but 
know what I'm saying? Larson did some covers. Okay, Shadowhawk. No, I don't like Shadowhawk. Right, right. Uh, it, what, what, th- this stuff is okay. The Cyber Force stuff is okay, but it's nothing incredible. Um, what else? The the Liefeld stuff? I mean, like, you know what I'm saying? But in your head is, oh, it's the artists, and these are all art-driven books. The art on the I, whole yeah, of these was, books no, is kind I, of I think dog Liefeld in the early Youngblood days was still pretty pretty energetic, how, how pretty striking. Long? How long was uh, the uh, early? How many, I, issue, how many issues were the early well, Youngblood? I, I can't speak to issues, nah. but I will say, especially because they did multiple volumes. You can't volumes publish an issue a quarter and say it was <laughs> right. two years worth of great-looking books. Yeah, four fair, of them. I, mean, I mean, to me, Wildcats, eh, it's okay. I, I didn't think it was a great book. They're all very similar. To me, the only one that stood out was Todd. Todd's books absolutely stand out. Larson's books absolutely stand out. Well, because well, the, even fucking the because Max, because Wildcats is, Wildcats styles, is still just the fucking X. It's no, not it, it, if Spawn was like Spider Man, it would not have been as cool. The the subject matter in Spawn is what made it because it, it was actually different. Whereas no, these guys the art style though, fucking Cyber Force, they're in Westchester, New York. Like that's why you're like, eh, this stuff kind of sucked. I'm talking about purely art from an artistic standpoint. The Wildcat books looked fucking amazing. Jim Lee obviously really cared about those characters. They're just dog shit characters in dog shit stories. The art is amazing in Wildcat. It's fucking fantastic. I, 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 just, I, I, I think, think like, yeah. like Marlowe and his character, I just, I never thought they looked that cool. I didn't think the artwork was that great. I liked the design. I thought Warblade looked cool. I thought Maul looked good. Grifter. Yeah. Mm, cool. They fucking look all, they look great. Grifter what was cool because well, he was the first guy to have a mask that Before we get into that, I don't want to go into the individual characters. That's kind of a separate thing. I'm not on the same page as you because I really do think that you can be wrong. The two art styles are similar enough that I sometimes will have trouble figuring out which one is which. Mark Sylvester is trying to the characters the characters are tricking you it's yeah. because the characters are so fucking similar there's a lot of similarities but also Mark Silvestri is gym leading as hard as he can and so there are times when he gets close enough to where I have trouble telling one from the other one I do still think that overall the art in the gym Lee issues is better just because I and again Jim Lee was my favorite artist at one point in time there's no point in time when Mark Silvestri was ever my favorite artist so but I can also see I think that he's a more unique artist before and after the Cyber Force period during the Cyber Force period he's just trying to generally his ass off and especially with Scott Williams giving him inks I think they're much closer than you're giving credit for but I also I do agree that Jim Lee's better at being Jim Lee than Mark Silvestri is but I think the artwork is really really good on both books and I, I just don't see as much as a, dis- a disparity as you if you see Scott Williams pencil he looks like Jim Lee sure I, I mean so to me when you say it's not even just that Mark Silvestri yeah, is trying Williams to is Jim, Lee, him the Jim Lee polish. he's even getting the Jim Lee assimilator to then further assimilate I mean, the assimilator he is a polish you know but but will i mean uh, mark is getting the same polish he's getting that same jimleyization that jim lee get you know but i don't think it's assimilation i think that there's just a there's just a polish that scott brings that jim can't get to on his own and mark Sylvester can't get to on his own they both benefit from having scott williams and there is a parody because a large part because of the scott williams but also because mark Sylvester's going there and doing all the same fucking lines like jim lee does um so like, there, there, there's a strong similarity between the two of them so also the simple fact is is mark Sylvester influenced jim lee and then jim lee turned around and influenced mark Sylvester. There's a time period where they're both working out of the same studio. They're looking at each other's work. They're trying to one-up each other. They're doing a lot of similar stuff. And for me, they're, they're close enough that it's like, it gets hard to tell them apart sometimes. That's why, when I'm thinking of their art styles, I'm thinking of the X-Men stuff. Yeah. That's when they were yeah, different. It's much more and pronounced sorry, on X-Men. I, I know that it sold 8 million copies, but I didn't think it was that great of a cover. I thought it was okay. I never I never was blown yeah. away by great fucking cover. Jim Lee's <laughs> hey, look, um, The uh, cover looks fucking great. Oh, the X-Men number one? Yeah. It looks, I never liked the X-Men number one I, cover. I think, yeah, I, I think the cover's fucking yeah. great. I just thought it was okay. Especially for a long as gatefold like that to, to work I think it looks fantastic yeah. I just I never they, thought they, my thing is they did like the triptych he did before that I like the triptych they took pieces of the triptych and turned into covers of the magazines and shit like 
because the triptych was so nice. What the fuck and is then, a triptych? Triptych, it was a three-piece image that interconnected that featured the X-Men character. And like I said, they took parts of that when they hadn't figured out which characters were going to be on which teams. They just put all the X-Men together in one three-part image. Took that and they turned it into a series of plates and they sold the plates together as a triptych, a three-piece okay. part. And again, they would take parts of that and one of those parts was a cover to comic scene. And then another one was like a previews cover, I think, or some shit like that. And whereas, and so I like the triptych and the X-Men, I, I agree, it's a good image overall. Like it's good the way that it all interconnects and stuff. I'm just not as into it. I think probably part of it is because you got that one cover that's just all Magneto. And I'm just not into Magneto the way a lot of people are. I don't know. I thought, I just, I'm I not just, as into I, it. I personally, I just thought it was a little stiff. Yeah, and, it, and it's also, it's it's still referencing so, uh, the X-Men number one cover from the 60s. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, With the, the four, Magneto in the force field and the guys are trying to break through the force field and now shit. Now granted, so. I like. And it also references the Art Adams version of that same cover, but with Nightcrawler and shit. I think actually Cockrum did it and I think Art Adams did a, a homage to it. And it's it's definitely him paying homage to previous X-Men covers. I just like all the X-Men covers better than the Jim Lee version. I just thought as into it. Yeah. But overall, I still prefer Jim Lee. I'm not, I'm not, I've said that, but yeah, I'm just not that into that particular image. Sorry. I'm going to stop talking now. Okay. I, I would say that cover is better than any Mark Sylvester cover I've ever seen. No. Wait, what are, what, what are the, the Brood Wolverine cover? You think it's better oh, than that? Oh, so he's that. got, okay. So he's got a few. Well, hell, the Brood the, close up face the one, cover. What, the, he did the one with uh, Wolverine crucified, right? Yeah, he did that one. Yeah. Fuck, dude. Look, I'm that telling you, iconic. I, I said a million times already, Mark Sylvester was better on X Men than this Cyber Force shit. Yeah, I said Jim Lee. Yeah. I'll the hear X-Men. the argument then. Well, and, and I do, won't hear the argument right. here. The other thing I want to say mm-hmm. about Wildcats is that anytime we talk about Wildcats, you and Mr. Fixit will immediately go into the TBS Wildcats cartoon theme, mm-hmm. correct? Uh, that was CBS. CBS. Oh, even better. I, yeah, uh, was it Savage Dragon was uh, TBS or TNT? USA. I don't know. USA, that's, it's the same thing. For me, it's fucking Wild Boys by Duran Duran. I, anytime <laughs> we're talking about Wildcats, Wild Boys will earworm into my brain and I, it's going to be there for two or three days probably. I mean, and then you're going to air this episode and it's going to stay in there for. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course I'm going to play a clip too 100 and you should absolutely you fucking should absolutely should If they didn't, that's part, I think, one of the reasons why I started doing the Wildcats TV theme as a mantra to help to avoid that from happening. I want to say that there were some X-Factor villains from the same time period, probably from the Larry Stroman run. They were called the Wild Boys. And so there's an association uh, yeah, there. Yeah. I think that, w- that one of the working titles for Wildcats while they were developing it was Wild Boys. Uh, so you're not wrong about that. Uh, and also, it's just one of the best Duran Duran videos. I mean, that's the fucking Mad Max pastiche, man. That's a badass video. I love that one. You've seen the video, right? Yeah, yeah. And then they keep oh dunking Simon LeBond's head in the water and shit. It's fucking cool. Yeah, it's catchy as hell. Duran Duran wrote some really catchy tunes. There are a lot, I, know, I may have com- be completely repeating myself from another podcast, but I don't fucking care. The, you know, when we talked about Tom Petty after Tom Petty passed mm-hmm. away, how he had like three 
different career like renaissances right and, and it wasn't based on like rehashing old hits mm-hmm. like he, he had like different phases of a career where it was like he was the shit and none of it had to do with his prior work Durant Duran Duran had that too they had all their 80s new wave stuff that came out and then they had their MTV era with like uh what is it well uh, I assure you it was all MTV era you know both yeah, every time they were popular yeah, yeah. they had MTV come undone and all that stuff was all later right right well you see like you said that you had the early 80s where they dominated then they sort of laid low and they did side projects and stuff and then there's probably some question about whether they'd come back and then come undone just blew up and that the wedding album as a whole was a huge hit and they were just all they were back again they were they were top dogs again anyway so that's what it's weird to say that duran duran and tom petty have some sort of parallel but to me that was that they were like they were that old new wave 80s band and then suddenly we're here in the fucking mid 90s or whatever and they're absolutely explode it's not like uh the beatles where it was a hey we're releasing all of our cover or all of our uh greatest hits mm-hmm. after 20 years it's and you know a couple you know maybe remasters of some studio version it's like this is a complete new album full of complete new material that although the voices are the same it doesn't sound like the old stuff mm-hmm. but we can dominate the charts today just like we did back then so well and it helps that come undone and ordinary world are still fucking bangers man those are timeless huge classics. bangers yeah huge bang but so was mary jane's last dance right mm-hmm. i mean it's not and, and it's funny you don't hear that refugee, one as often but, right like i, I haven't heard uh, it's been a long time since heard Barry uh, uh, J's last dance. Um, like out I in the get wild. It. No, I get it, but I don't. I'm not really out in the wild, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I, I guess uh, I hear free falling more. Oh yeah, okay. And that was maybe that, I do that, too. That was pretty inescapable too for years. Yeah, yeah. Not not my favorite Tom Petty song, but yeah, I liked it. I enjoyed it, but uh, but also I prefer Last Dance though. Yeah, way cooler video as well. Anyway, that has nothing to do with Wildcats. No, Continue. They tried to break us. Looks like they'll try again. So over the course of the crossover, Wildcats number six comes out December 6th, 1993. So roughly a month after the previous issue, doing good. Cyber Force is the one that's fucking it up. Number two doesn't come out until January the 10th, 1994. So a full month after the Wildcats chapter, the opening chapter of Killer Instinct. Then Wildcats number seven comes out exactly one week later, January 18th. So you know that they're waiting on the Sylvester side of things to get released so they can put their shit out. The finale doesn't come out until February 28th, five weeks late. We have Cyber Force number three and noteworthy since Wildcats number eight is its own story they were able to release February 21st 1994 so they came out a week before the final chapter of Killer Instinct because they got tired of waiting on Sylvester's ass. Wildcats number eight was dedicated in memory of Jack the King Kirby so this one had a backup story and since it takes place before or actually during Wildcats trilogy which we covered I wish I'd gotten it in then the story is Voodoo in Past Lives by Steven Siegel, Travis Charest and Tom McWheeney and because of that art continuity, even though it's slotted in one of the Jay Lee miniseries, at least you have like a sense of time because those were the two artists who were doing the Wildcat stories when Jim Lee wasn't. And it says explicitly in the text, this story takes place after Wildcats trilogy number one. It's three months since Wildcats number one in story. And Voodoo has tried to go back to dancing at one of the clubs. She's at the Black Book Club, which a friend of hers worked at. But she's just not into it anymore because now that her telepathy has been fired up by her interactions with the Damonites, 
She can hear the patrons as she's trying to dance and it's just like fucking with her mojo. Also, she has a ton of survivor's guilt over what happened at the Hotspot Club in the Wildcats miniseries. She's just scarred by all that shit. And speaking of scarring, one of the coda that were scarred by the explosion at the Hotspot and wants revenge. She's basically going to try to reclaim her honor by killing Voodoo. She manages to grab tassels of Voodoo's stupid costume and choke her with them. But Voodoo's able to control the coda's mind for long enough to get the coda to like leap and like lose control and accidentally stab herself. And so because she A, it feels like she's in a new place in her life. B, she didn't like how her costume was used against her. And C, because by this point they were planning the uh, Wildcats cartoon on CBS and they weren't going to let her run around in a stripper costume in the cartoon, she debuts a new yellow and purple costume, mostly purple. That sets up why she suddenly had a new look in that miniseries. Before you move on from Wildcats number eight, I have this comic book, I think. And the only reason I think I bought it was because, look, I'm not going to take any shit for this. I refuse to is uh, when I googled Wildcats number eight, the only image that popped up was the two images. One was the cover and the second one was a voodoo pole dancing drawn by Travis Charest. And Mm -hmm. when I saw the picture of her pole dancing, I know I have that fucking comic. (laughs) 100%. I'm pretty sure that panel may have been the reason I purchased it. And was there, did you buy that new or did you get that after the fact? Oh, that was from a dollar bin probably. Okay, yeah. Uh, There's no way about that. Well, and also there was some stuff in the actual story that could have prompted you to pick it up as well. So the basics of the story is that Grifter and Zila play pool at a bar and they get in a fight with some rednecks. I don't think Jim Lee is very good at drawing rednecks or fat people. It's just not something that works with his particular glossy style. One of the people they fight with is clearly Violet Marr from Sin City. So an acknowledgement of the influence that Frank Miller was having on Jim Lee's work at that time. There's also a boot to the head moment that despite being inked by Richard Bennett in his super detailed style, because Lee felt the need to do all the treads and stuff, you can still see a Miller influence there. After they beat the guys up, Zella tries to hook back up with Grifter. Grifter's not having it. We're not going back to that place again. Uh, he gets a page from a guy named Cyberjack and he hops on his little Akira bike and rides off. Meanwhile, Reno Bryce and Jeremy Stone are trying to pick up chicks at an art show gallery. You know who either one of those people are by name? Uh, say that one more time. Reno Bryce and Jeremy Stone. Fuck no. Didn't think so. So these are the plain clothes versions of Warblade and Maul. And it's a little weird ah. because Maul looks so different in plain clothes. He's one of these dudes who like wears suits a couple sizes too big and has them Dwayne Wayne glasses and shit. Little soul patch and everything. He's a doctor though so I guess he's trying to rock the academic look. Meanwhile, Voodoo and Hadrian, do you know who Hadrian is? Zero chance. Spartan. But again, okay. they're playing clothes. They're on a cruise, so thematically appropriate. They're on that cruise with Jacob Marlowe. Voodoo's feeling the need to flirt with the robot guy, so they're very much getting a Vision of Scarlet Witch thing going with the book. And because it's Jim Lee, of course, they're suntanning on the deck, and so she's got to be in her swimsuit model phase with a two-page spread. So that'd be a whole other reason to pick it up, is Jim Lee doing his Marvel uh, swimsuit, ca- swimsuit calendar shit. Yeah. yeah. Also, there's a cute bit where she like throws her coke at the guy and he acts like he's shorting out you know just to fuck with her so that was kind of cute what's also neat is that on the deck on their honeymoon are Scott and Jean because this would have been around the same time they got married in the X-Men comics and so Uh just a little tip of the hat by Jim Lee to his former subjects and certainly part of the inspiration for the book he's doing at that point before she can uh, turn Hadrian into her personal vibrator Lord Imp shows up and reminds them that they're there on a mission that there's apparently some kind of a Bermuda Triangle thing that they're investigating and sure enough this big vortex opens up and sucks them all into it and the ship appears to be destroyed and because of her link to Lord Imp Void starts to flip out and she's back at the Halo building and there's this character named Miss Newberry who's got short blonde hair and this bald guy named Stansfield and they try to make them like be like their Jarvis or like some of those supporting characters from X-Men but given that they can't write the main characters all that well they really can't do anything much for the supporting characters so these guys popped up a bit in the 
the early issues and then they're completely forgotten about as we go forward. And it turns out the reason why this vortex is appearing is that it's got something to do with Lord Entropy, who's apparently been trying to capture Lord Imp, even though that's like the most stupid way to go about this is you like suck up a bunch of ships full of people just so you could hope that at some point Lord Imp is going to investigate. Kind of dumb. Then we go into Wildcats, Covert Action Teams number nine. That was released March 21st, 1994. So again, one month later, Jim Lee is actually the guy hitting his deadlines. Kudos to him for being able to do it back then. In this part, we see Voodoo and Hadrian being tortured by nightmare visions of demonites, like ripping them to pieces and shit, which I guess is one of Lord Entropy's powers. We get a flashback and it reveals that Entropy and Imp are not only they brothers, but they're also both medieval knights in this flashback. And they're fighting the demonites and Entropy's wife ultimately gets possessed by a demonite and the guy's basically going to let his wife chop his head off, but Imp kills her first. Entropy just can't fucking handle it, goes off his rocker. And in the centuries since, he's managed to confuse the issue enough to where he thinks that he murdered the wife before she's a demonite or some bullshit like that. It's also interesting to me reading this today because when DC bought Wildstorm and eventually tried to incorporate them into the New 52, they had a book called Demonites where it was supposed to involve the demonites and like the DC medieval characters interacting with them. But they always downplayed the Wildstorm part of it so much that it never, the synergy wasn't there where it obviously should have been because the book's called fucking Demonites, you know, right? Or Demonites. So in this story, we find out that the reason why Entropy is able to do this is because he has one of the orbs of power, which goes back to the original miniseries. And there's a page in this book that's really a mission statement for the Wildcats lore. I needed to read this one, I think, verbatim. So Void's explaining that she is a human incarnation of one of the orbs of power. So that's how she knows all this information. And she says, In the future, a great war was fought between the forces of good and evil. In the final battle, a champion of light, Omnia, O-M-N-I-A, was defeated and her life force was shattered, with shards of her essence scattered throughout the space-time continuum. Over the millennia, many of them have reappeared on Earth in the form of shooting stars. Upon impact, the shards often took the form of a glowing stone or orb, with each one possessing a unique aspect of the disembodied whole. Throughout the course of history, a number of these powerful orbs were discovered, and while some humans utilized them for good, others used the orbs for evil. In the summer of 1980, one shard struck the Soviet Mir space station, Pustoda. The spacecraft exploded upon impact. While I should have died along with my fellow cosmonauts on that day, I was spared when the essence of the orb bonded with my human entity, Major Adriana Tereshkova. Because of their common origin, all the orbs are attuned to each other's presence. Remembering my past encounter with this particular orb, I can track down the location of it by focusing upon its unique energy signature. So clearly this is a thing that could have fueled Wildcat stories, Wildstorm stories, the Image Universe as a whole. You've got all these orbs of power floating around. We had another character that was involved with the orbs in the Wildcats special that we read that Travis Charest drew, but I don't think they really ever gets touched on again and this seems like it should be a center point of their lore and it just never progresses. So anyway, using the connection to the orb, Void gets the team to Lord Imp and the, and the other people that had gotten captured. Voodoo uses her illusionary powers to make herself appear to be Gwyneth, the wife of Lord Entropy, and basically gets him to pause long enough for Imp and Void to merge and use their combined power to blast Entropy. He gets buried as his base starts to fall apart and then at the end Imp decides that he needs time to himself to figure out who he is and, and with these revelations of his past he still has amnesia so he supposedly quits the team at the end of that issue. Mr. Fixit you just read the backup story from Wildcats number 9. Who did it and what's it called? Uh, the Bonds of Blood and Steel. So Travis Charest? Charest? How do you say his name? I think it's some shit like Charvet but we're going to say Charest or Charest because that's what we know. That's what it looks like. French fucking bullshit. Who wrote it? Jeff Mortis? M-O-R-I-O-T-T-E? 
story? Uh, Last one. Jeff Marriott. Or, uh, yeah, uh, and he... More French. Right, something like that. I think it's some Canadian shit, too. I think that's the guy who wrote a bunch of stuff for Wildstorm. I think he might have been an editor or a letterer for them or some shit. If I'm correct, I think he did, like, Union or something. I think he was probably fucking, like, the janitor and shit. Like, hey, you want to write a book? Somebody's cousin. So what happens in the story? It stars Warblade, yes? Yes, Warblade is some kind of fucking detective looking for their domo, dynamites. He's looking for some dynamite. He comes into some guy's off house. There's a kid in the house. Turns out the dad is a hitman for some guy named Shaky or Sharky. That Sharky was a, 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 a donomite. And so... A daemonite. A donomite. And so... What you say? Like dolomite? Yeah. <laughs> so donomite shows up and uh, Warblade's gonna fight him. He headbuds him. Warblade's like, oh shit. Pulls the old rug trick. The donomite goes out the window. Hot damn. Hits the street. He jumps out to kill him. Kid looks out the window. Donomite takes a couple of shots at him. Warblade decides to kill the donomite and take the kid. And that's pretty much the story. And this is a toddler, right? Nah, he's about, about four. No, Slightly. he's not that old. Yeah, three, four. I mean, the fact that he hits Warblade, like, it's just bad. It's just bad, right? Well, the whole thing is like, he, the Warblade's freaked out about going after the Daemonite. Is he like a detective now? Like, is he well, fucking he's running around in a Is he shit. fucking the question? I, I, think, I think he was pursuing a Daemonite and then he sees that there's a kid and he's afraid of killing the kid's dad, but then the dad gets out of control as a Daemonite or says that, ha ha, I already killed the guy. I've already Don't killed his soul or word shit. Don't mind looks at him and goes, I bet, was like, how's it go? Hold on. I've been fuck. Hold on. You can open the comic book. It's on your lap. No, 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 no. Hold on. You're making me wait no. for a bullshit joke. I'm going to be very unimpressed. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> fuck y'all. Well, no, there's Donomite has a, a line in a movie and I was going to use it, but I can't remember now. Okay. It's like chewing up railroad steel and shitting out steel and bullshit like this. So oh, yeah. It spits out nails, some shit like that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I just saw, uh, the, I just saw the Eddie Murphy movie. So totally kinda... worth waiting for. So, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> You know, Wildcats was sort of like a weird black box to me. I felt that it was supposed to be more popular than anything outside of Spawn, but I feel like I flipped through fewer copies of Wildcats. I, you know, I feel like I looked at more Cyberforce than I saw even Wildcats. I don't know what well, I don't know why that is, but I, I feel like I always saw I always had access to Savage Dragon. I always had access to what few Youngblood issues I ever saw, and plenty of access to Spawn. But I just feel like Wildcats and Cyberforce never either grabbed me to pick up and flip through them or I just never really saw them. I don't I don't know what uh, I don't know what that's about. Yeah, I think part of it might have been sell through. Like I, I think that Wildcats may regardless of the order levels, I think that more issues of Wildcats got into people's hands. Could it have also been that I guess I mean I guess they all had fucked up uh, publication schedules, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again like you said but as a for instance, when you talked about you were able to flip through Cyberforce issues. I remember doing that too. I don't remember flipping through a lot of issues that were killer instinct tie-ins where the Wildcats mm. were up with them. I remember all right. the other ones. And so I think what it was is the Wildcats continued to have a good sell-through even if they didn't order as many copies on the monthly because Spawn dominated. It was a number one book and it was yeah, coming out yeah. consistently so you were consistently having those high orders and you would have enough for everybody. Where Wildcats, they were probably adjusting because of all those gaps in the well, the gap in the schedule between the miniseries and the ongoing series and the fact the ongoing series doesn't get started until late into 93 when you know that the uh, market has started to collapse and so you're probably not going to be as optimistic about your sell-through. So I think it was a situation where they probably were under-ordered and they actually had good sell-through. And so most of those Jim Lee drawn issues went into collections and they weren't lying around at comic shops for us to pick up down the line. I think the exception is 8 and 9 because it's really not that good of a story. There's no crossovers or anything. Chris Claremont isn't writing those issues. Although I remember having some of those too. So I know there wasn't an absolute sell-through, but I think that they probably sold better than Cyberforce and were less ordered than Spawn. And so it got caught in the middle where there just aren't as many of them floating around in a comic shop later in the 90s when we were both working at comic shops. 
Yeah, and you know what? I spent I was in more comic shops from ninety two, I'd say ninety one to ninety three, and then we didn't have access to comics again outside of a newsstand until probably like ninety six when I first ran into you. Mm-hmm. So if the Wildcats main series got a later start, then that could explain it too. Mm-hmm. Savage Dragon and Spawn they were both their day one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, I mean, those were so. I mean, if I remember correctly, it's Young Blood, Spawn, Savage Dragon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that that could have been it too. Uh, That's why I more vividly remember those three because mm-hmm. they were there on the very like the, the first day of Image Explosion, and then all you know. Although there was the Wildcats miniseries, the fucking regular month to month quote unquote issues weren't really out there. I had kind of phased out of comic book shop life. So maybe that's what it well, was. Well, and also Jim Lee was finishing out his obligations to X-Men, so it took him a little bit longer to jump in. Right, right. And you definitely remember the original issues of the early miniseries. It's that after the gap that just gets more obscure for you. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that actually might explain it. So it might be more me than, I mean, although it's their fucking fault too, but you know. <laughs> yeah, because I, w- I wasn't seeing Wildcats at Walgreens, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not sure Walgreens was carrying Wildcats. I think at some point it got some newsstand distribution, but yeah, the, the problem is, is, again, this was the thing that very much benefited Spawn, is that it was one of the first books out the line. It came out consistently. They got newsstand distribution earlier than anybody any of their image books, because I think that had to be, like, I think they had to be negotiated, like, title by title. And the fact that Spawn is the best-selling comic book in the country, you want to have that on your newsstand as well. So it makes sense that that hit the Walmarts and the Toys R Us and stuff. And it wasn't until the violent content caught up with them that they started pulling that shit back out again. But they were getting a, a hot book out on a consistent schedule, so it's probably a lot easier for them to get out of there. Where I agree with you, I don't remember ever seeing Wildcats any place but a comic shop. They might have done like some sort of packet of the first few issues or something. I know they were doing some of that stuff back then for like unsold copies and shit. I don't remember ever seeing it on a stand outside of comic shop. Right. Okay. I mean, so that, that may explain it. That may just be my migration that, uh, that you know, like I'm not imagining it. No. That's just like the reality. I, Savage of it. I Dragon I definitely saw on stands and I think they actually had different editions. Like one was on better paper for higher cost and the other one was cheaper and definitely Shadowhawk of all things. I remember they're doing because mo- he had the cool version with the embossed cover and he had a shittier version on that was a, just a drawing and uh, it was on worse paper if I remember correctly. See, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have noticed that, mm-hmm. but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> anyway, continue, sir. So ultimately, Cyber Force versus Wildcats, it seems pretty likely which way we're going to go on that particular matchup. Yeah. So, hey, what the fuck ever happened to Cyber Force? Wildcats became like a DC canon, right? Yeah, they're, they're actually integrated into the DC universe now and they currently have an ongoing series that still mostly focuses on the the Wildcats proper characters but also bleeds in a bunch of the DC uh, stuff as well. Okay. And it re- like they reintroduced Grifter in a Batman story arc and they sort of built from there. Alright, that was only half my question. So what the fuck happened to Cyberforce? Uh, after the series uh, finished after about 36 issues they've had a few relaunches since then. I don't think I, any of the relaunches have lasted much past 12 issues and there's only been like a couple or three that were noteworthy. They just they don't catch on each time and so they had like a, a Kickstarter that funded the last series but it still ended and they're not doing anything right now yikes yeah well that sucks again when you're the second rate wildcats that's not a good position to find oneself in if you want to be continuously yeah. published I mean really they even though that was the launch book for Top Cal it was never really once Wild Witch Blade came on and then the darkness that was the Top Cal big two yeah it, it, Cyber Force yeah, really got forgotten about it seemed like they created a mythology around those two you know objects you know they built they built the whole artifacts subline on those art on those devices and all the cyber data sh- shit just seemed to you know dry 
dry up and blow away. You know, it just wasn't compelling. So what's Mark Sylvester doing now? He's doing a Batman miniseries. Batman and the Joker team up miniseries. Really? Yeah. And they're doing the thing now where they're shooting from his pencils. They're not bothering to ink it anymore. So it's uh, rougher looking, but still looks like Sylvester. You know, it looks like a Sylvester Batman miniseries. So nothing wrong with that if you're into that oh, sort yeah. of thing. Homie is 64 years old now. Yeah. He was among the oldest ones. I think that Sylvester is older. Oh, no, sorry. I think that, um, that now I'm doing it. I think that Jim Valentino is the oldest of them. So he's, he's probably pushing 70 at this point. But Sylvester, he just got started way earlier. You know, Sylvester, his career started around 80-ish or so. Like some of the very first comic books I was buying when I started collecting comics were drawn by Sylvester. He drew the What If Destiny what had if Destroyed Namor. Submariner. Yeah. yeah, it had destroyed Atlantis. He did one of the first Conan comics I ever saw that had a Walt Simonson cover where he's fighting this gigantic owl and shit. All the image guys are known for the late 80s and he was already around the early 80s so it makes sense that he'd be older than most of them. Right on. Because even Sylvester, well, I think he might have been doing some indie stuff in that time period. Sylvester's period as a as a notable indie person was like 84, 85. So I'm I'm not sure how, I'm, I'm still pretty sure he's older or the oldest, but Sylvester's not t- far behind him. Although they're all in their 60s now. They're just degrees, like late 50s and 60s now. No, no, so that's not true, to... is it? No, I guess it is, yeah. No, how old is Jim Lee? He's pushing 60. 58, wow. Yeah. And again, well, I'm going through some of these like Liefeld and shit, so. Yeah, I'm clicking through some of these uh, like the uh, the press stuff or the this Batman Joker stuff. It looks good uninked mm-hmm. with just colored over his rough pencils. It looks very Mark Silvestri because he was kind of more of a, you know, I don't know. Like I picture, didn't he? He, he did all the uh, the Wolverine stuff with like Albert, the android. Mm-hmm. LCD. And uh, the little girl mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And Nick Fury's was like all that to me was very like dirty, you know. Fighting in the sewers hat. and shit. Fighting in yeah. the sewers. Exactly. So uh, to me, him uninked, it, it still kind of fits. Anyway, good for him. Back to the mothership, huh? So it, back to the big two. Anyway, if you're feeling that before, now that now the, the the second round, Spartan versus Cyclops. I mean, it's Cyclops, dude. I mean, come on. Now in design too, though. Yeah, design too. Yeah. yeah well, you I, definitely I take, know uh, who Cyclops is. With the, you got the guy with the una unibrow, you know, the 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 visor and shit. The visor alone, it, the, the visor is iconic. Whether you think Scott Summers sucks or not, the visor is iconic. It is. I, I'm gonna throw. I, I, I'll, I, I'll throw no. you for a loop. I actually think that Spartans classic costume is better than any single Cyclops costume. And he's had some decent ones, but I, I really do think Spartan's got a nice look. There's just nothing beyond that look. Where Cyclops actually has a personality to character and a little history and everything else. It, whether you like him or not, because again, you have to put that disclaimer because so many people hate Cyclops as a character, but he is a well-rounded character where Spartan is a robot. But I, but I actually think that the Spartan look is striking. And I, I since Cyclops is mostly wears variations on X-Men team costumes, I, I kind of give it to Spartan on design. Yeah, I mean, I understand that he, he but to me he is the setter of the x-men team oh, sure. costume they all are dressing like cyclops because he's the team leader so i don't shit on him for that like when wolverine changes his colors he's changing them to look like cyclops mm-hmm. because cyclops is the team leader and he's the fashion setter mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying no i disagree i i actually have really liked a lot of cyclops's costumes i really like the blue with the the jim lee the the capless with the hair out the blue with the yellow uh it's got the weird like it goes over the shoulder to the X logo on his pec. Mm-hmm. I'm down with that. I like the old full skull cap blue. Wasn't when he was on X Force? Wasn't it inverse? It was like white. Oh, he's there's blue. been a lot of variations. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I, I'm down with them, and I, I I have no allegiance to Cyclops or Scott Summers yeah. at all. But I'm down with all these costumes. Well, one of the things, and it's all the fucking visor. Yeah. Well, and one of the thing too is I think if you're trying to design a character to be on a team, Cyclops is one of the best guys because even wearing the team uniform, his power set is such that you know exactly who Cyclops 
Cyclops is and he's going to stand apart. But I do think that Spartan is a design that could have been a solo books character's design. I think that's part of the problem is he looks like he should be a focal character and there's just not enough personality there to live okay. up to the look. I, I, I gotta see where you're coming with that. I see where you're coming with that. So Voodoo versus Psylocke. Uh, probably Voodoo only because Psylocke has, she's got the one, the Jim Lee ninja costume mm-hmm. and then she's got the the Mandarin armor and outside of that, outside of that, her, her fucking costume. Well, and then she also had the purple and pink armor that Silvestri put her in. That was quite the eyesore. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I'll give it to Voodoo. Yeah, I have to agree. I think that she's got more interesting colors. She actually has colors. You know, Psylocke's basically just get, got the blue electric costume because now I will say Psylocke her, got the red her, electric her, costume. You know, her, her side blades are pretty iconic, sure. but that's not really. I mean, and that's part of her deal. So I'll give her some credit for that. Yeah, given. But it's also kind of stupid at yeah. the same time. It's like, yeah. you know, I mean, why should you have to get up close to somebody to do a telepathic assault when you know you've got all these other telepaths that are like a mile away and they're still knocking people out? It just makes because it it's fucking. I mean, cool. It is cool. It is cool visually it's and cool. having to be a martial artist and stuff. But also, she's like in her class, she's not the greatest martial artist and she's not the greatest telepath. She, it's interesting that she's a combination of the two, but it's also at the same time kind of like, but <laughs> you're still you're, you're trailing behind everybody else in the things that you're supposed to be good at. And honestly, like if you want to say her her ninja costume, the bathing suit with the bands on the the legs or whatever, if you want to say that's the jam, her other ones have been like when you, for a while she was just rocking the blue and yellow, mm-hmm. the team colors, and then she had the the fucking hood. She's had some terrible costumes. Yeah. So I feel like some of them have been so bad, it's got to count against her too. And I'm going to go a step further. I think Voodoo's a better character. I think she's better developed. She's had better writing. They didn't decide to make a white British chicken Asian chick and then have to deal with the repercussions of that. There's just a lot of problematic stuff. And I liked Psylocke. I was, especially in that time period when Jim Lee was doing her, I was like, Psylocke was one of my favorites. But also, especially when Alan Moore was writing her, Voodoo then became one of my favorites. And I still have the affection for Voodoo where over the years I've lost it for Psylocke. So I really have to give it to Voodoo on this one as a character. Her armor, though, when she was uh, in those Mandarin issues is fucking awesome. It is cool, but also you couldn't draw that on a monthly basis for sure. No, 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 no. Uh, Grifter versus Gambit. I think Grifter's got a better costume <laughs> than Gambit does. But, um, you know, I don't think I read enough, really, of either of the characters. Gambit always got on my nerves. My petite. Um, yeah, really got on my nerves. Uh, but the, the fucking playing card shit is super cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I probably wouldn't have admitted that back in the, uh, back in the 90s when I was reading comic books, but it's cool that he's got a deck of cards and that he can do the it, it, even in the co- in the uh, video games he had some really cool moves so did Psylocke uh, using the their powers and stuff so uh, I, I would still say Grifter but like just kind of barely I'd almost call it a draw mm-hmm. but uh, and for me I'm gonna go Gambit definitely has a bold costume not everybody could especially when you have the Speedo but he's a character who is a little bit more overt in his sexuality than most male super characters and I respect that yeah the accent can get to be a bit much but you also know exactly who's talking whenever he opens his mouth yeah, um, yeah. I love the powers and the, 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 yep. the energy uh, 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 the conferring the energy onto objects and flinging the objects is cool especially when used on the playing cards you know because you got all those great shots of him standing the cards and throwing the individual cards or hitting somebody with the full deck and shit I like Grifter's look the only thing is I, I want him to be cooler than he is like he looks so cool that I want him to have more personality and it, like his name is Grifter but he never grifts you know and uh, admittedly Gambit doesn't really Gambit either. He's not. You, Gambit should be say. more of a strategist, but he does run cons and stuff. He does the whole thieving thing, the heist thing. I, 
like Gambit. I've always, I, he was the like the penultimate character among the X Men of characters that were created for the X Men books that I actually have affection for before I, that ceased. So there, he'll always have a soft spot because I was there when he first came out and when he was blowing up. I dig the guy, so I'm gonna give it to Gambit. Okay, and he used the staff. Staff is a oh very yeah, cool, the, uh, I love the way he used un, the most uncommon staff. weapon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Zealot versus Storm. Uh, Storm. Storm. I'm not. I don't even think we even talk about this. Like Storm, no. great character, great look. Zealot's still essentially Electra after all these years. Like no, it's gotta go to Storm. Uh, yeah. Warblade versus Wolverine. Wolverine. It depends on the costume. Like, no, yeah, forget about yeah, it. Because for me, like I, I, I would take the uh, the full feral Wolverine where he had no nose. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> it, I'm not. I'm not even gonna entertain this conversation. <laughs> no, here's the thing. Jim Lee brought back the yellow and blue suit when he took over X Men. It pissed me off because I never liked that look. I don't understand where yellow and blue has anything to do with a fucking Wolverine. I'm a hundred percent the brown and tan guy. And they've done some cool like paramilitary variations on that. And, and I'm cool with most of those. I just really hate the yellow and blue costume. And I think Ripclaw looks more like a Ripclaw in that circumstance. So against that one costume, I'm going to favor Ripclaw. Pretty much any other Wolverine costume, and certainly as a character, I got to go with Wolverine though. I just had to give that the asterisk there though. That one suit and some of the variations on that one, I, I would actually rather look at Ripclaw. Okay. So All right, fair Void versus Jean Grey. I'll go Jean. Mm-hmm. Not that any of her costumes outside of Phoenix have really been all that incredible, but uh, she's, I don't know, she's just a fucking iconic character. Mm-hmm. I, I have a hard time. <laughs> like, this is really, all of these are going to be hard for me just because Jean Grey is like a, some of the greatest, most notable comic book runs of all time have been around Jean Grey. So I don't know, you know. I think the costume she had at this particular time, the cartoon costume, fucking suck. And it didn't say sure. anything about her being a telepath. So again, this is one of those where yeah. in that one instance, Void would win. But Jean Grey is one of the more iconic characters in comics, certainly one of the most iconic X-Men. The Phoenix costume is fucking badass and so cool for a cosmic Incredible. character. Again, yeah. Void is trying to bite Silver Surfer's action, but you're never going to forget that she's just a wannabe Silver Surfer type on a cosmic scale, where Phoenix is a whole other thing. She's had some great and some not so great costumes. I, I really like the classic X-Men suit where she's got the green mini dress and the gigantic pointed mask and stuff. And yep. she's had a number of really yep. good costumes. I just think in the specific time period when the X-Men and the Wildcats were at their peak, Jean Grey's costume sucked. So that's the only instance where that would be uh, favoring the Wildcats. Maul versus Colossus. It's Colossus. Yeah. yeah. N- nobody looked like Colossus before Colossus. Nobody, anybody after Colossus is obviously ripping Colossus mm-hmm. off. I don't really know shit about Colossus. I, don't, I never read really very many comic books about Colossus, but I've always thought visually he is a, just super underrated. Super underrated. Uh, he, he's awesome. And he looks, when he was in uh, video games, he looked freaking awesome. It's just, it's such a great look. It's so simple. Although having the costume on top of the the chrome band it's almost overkill yeah almost but it still works mm-hmm. I, I mean I I, I like the, and then the tall boots when he had the tall boots mm-hmm. with like the, the flares at the top I, I mean I've always thought Colossus looked awesome so <laughs> yeah. it, I got nothing to do with this character I do not give I'm not buying comic books for Colossus but um, but I always thought the costume was, was fantastic yeah. and you know I, I really dig the purple skin on Maul and, he, and especially when he has the skull cap off and you see he has blonde hair with purple skin that's really unique and cool and I like the interplay between the green and the purple but Colossus is on a whole other level you know there's yeah. a reason why on Giants has X-Men number one he's the guy at the four they thought that he was going to be the big breakout character he was
wasn't, but he looked the part. His original costume is so fucking great, and it, and it's so cool because you got the silver with the the segregated the the, the separations in the armor and stuff, but also you have the the uh, yellow and red to give them a, a color pop and to contrast the gray against that. Uh, the interplay is excellent, and this is before you get into the whole Russian thing and being one of the first big Russian characters. He's Ilyana's brother. He's one of the longest running X Men. He had the really fucked up relationship with E Pride. There's just so much gold with that character, good and bad, that he's he's just so rich that there's no competition with Maul. Maul fucking sucks by comparison. Let's <laughs> be honest, Maul. you know. Well, Maul was never one of my because again, it, 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 very similar too, where you could tell that Jim Lee thought that Maul was going to be one of the bigger characters and featured him a lot in the early stories, and everybody fucking blew that guy off afterwards, and he became their beast, their guy. Like we need a science guy, go do some science shit, or we just need a yeah. big thug guy to bash stuff. He's a utility player. Professor X versus Lord Imp. I'm gonna go with Wheels, man. I'm gonna go with Professor X. I, I don't think he's as cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lord Imp had he kind of had the fucking cool swagger mm-hmm. to him, right? He drank, sort of he the, like, the, the pip swagger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not um, that not that fucking Professor X didn't drink and fuck too, man. Say, a surprising X degree. Had his moments. Yeah. yeah, he's also got his creepy moments. Oh yeah, uh, with some of the yeah big time. But look, I it's hard. To, I feel really bad saying a wheelchair is an iconic look, but nobody rocked that wheelchair in the history of mankind like fucking maybe Stephen Hawking maybe <laughs> no I, maybe. I honestly I think Professor X has it over Stephen Hawking because he didn't have a hover Professor chair Professor X rocked it over Stephen yeah. Hawking fuck uh, hover chair man all of the yeah. fuck the Big Bang Theory dude Professor X rocks that wheelchair it doesn't matter if it's a big yellow mm-hmm. hovering wheelchair or just a regular ass wheelchair and the eyebrows oh yeah the eyebrows how, how can a dude with no the dude is bald but his eyebrows are fucking iconic it's incredible super underrated and of course one of the more powerful characters in comics too it's always been one of his problems he's so powerful why did it's like Superman being the Justice League. Why do you need the right. X-Men? You're fucking Professor X. You can fucking mentally fuck everybody in the room, you know? Yeah, and I, I, mean, and I like Lord M. I think uh, visually, I think he's interesting. Uh, he seems like a lot of fun. He's basically, I, you know, we talked about this in uh, in the early days of talking about the Wildcat stuff. It's a very good possibility that Imp from, the the, the uh, a Lord Imp from Game of Thrones is a ripoff of Wildcats, you know? It, it, which is a fucking weird thing to have to acknowledge. It's certainly not something I would have thought myself. I would have feel like it was a reach if George R. R. Martin wasn't such a fully acknowledged comic book fan and literally I could have sworn Game of Thrones started in the 80s but it didn't start until the late 90s so almost certainly he ripped off Lord Up. and they're exactly the same they're both drinkers and fuckers and it's like how how would you not want to have Tyrion on your team that's so awesome but that's one of the problems is they're always sending Lord Up off to do something and getting rid of him in the Wildcats comics and they should have leaned into him instead of you know constantly sticking him into the leadership role or the backer role or killing him off and having Spartan take his place and all this bullshit they did with Wildcats down the line where they've done a bunch of shit with Fuss Rex and yeah he's fucked up creeper dude but he's also super fucking iconic and we all got turned on when Patrick Stewart rolled out in Multiverse of Madness you know finally we all knew it was coming we were still like yes he's there you know he's a central part of the Logan movie it's like that performance and even without that performance the the guy's just got so much history there's there's no competition with Fuss Rex so finally Wildcats versus X-Men I mean uh I mean you guys are you serious is it X-Men and I hate that fucking X-Men. <laughs> Fuck the X-Men. I don't even like it, but it's the X-Men. For me, honestly, Wildcat. I know that's... Uh, well, and I'm not, I'm not saying objectively. I, I have... I'm saying for me personally as an individual who reads comic books and collected both series, especially Alan Moore's run on Wildcats, I enjoyed that so much and it got me excited for monthly-ish comics uh, uh, in a way that most other books weren't in that time period and reminded me so much of the stuff I loved about X-Men but written in a way that I could still enjoy today where even when I try to go back to the classic stuff, sometimes I struggle with Claremont's writing. It's just so overwritten 
and so melodramatic. I still and I I still get excited for them popping up in the DC universe. I, I just tweeted out earlier today as we're recording that I'm debating picking up the DC Wildcat series because I, I really want to see the interplay between the the two universes in a way they kept promising years ago and never fulfilled. I just have a soft spot for the Wildcats as a team more than individual characters in a way that I don't so much have for the X-Men anymore especially you know I've seen all those movies and it does get to be something of a chore and it's so repetitive and the whole mutant thing gets so tiresome I like the sci-fi shit and the interplay between the angelic aliens and the demonic aliens and the possession shit I just I I enjoy Wildcats more as an adult who still buys these comic books in a way that I just can't enjoy the X-Men anymore so that's why I want to actually favor the Wildcats in this situation that's fine as someone who only read a little bit of X-Men but really only read the best shit right. and only am familiar with the literally like 1992 to 1994 Wildcats <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and say X-Men yeah bro. it's a, it's a safe choice absolutely and have have played countless hours of X-Men video games and cartoon and watch cartoons mm-hmm. I mean I got it sorry I love Wild Boys by Duran Duran but it's not enough to put them over the top <laughs> so yeah I'm glad although yeah. although I will say if you put the X-Men cartoon theme against Duran Duran's Wild Boys I would actually pause for a second because it's a great cartoon theme oh I, I, I'm going to have to put the Wild uh, sorry the X-Men theme above even Wild Boys that's that Wild Boys wishes it had a lick like that incredible and, I, and a symphonic I, version I said it like it's a hard take but I honestly don't know really think it's a hot take I, I feel like Duran Duran if they listen to their own song and then listen to the X-Men thing they would get the X-Men thing stuck in their head oh yeah, oh, yeah they don't in fact now that's the that's the cure whenever we talk about Wildcats and I get Wild Boys stuck in my head I'm gonna listen to the theme for X-Men to immediately wipe Wild Boys out of my brain yeah you cannot do a symphonic version of Wild Boys and have it work it, there's one yeah. recording of the song the one time preferably with the Mad Max music video playing in the background as well where they've repurposed that X-Men song so many times and I understand it apparently was fucking stolen like full on stolen from another composer uh, so credit whoever you got a credit for that but that, that tune is fucking badass and that is like one of the greatest theme songs for any comic book character easily you know that shit's so iconic it could actually go up against like the Superman theme by John Williams I'm uh, you know that it's at least in, in that's a, a, a discussion you can have that makes more sense and is more valid than me trying to pit Wildcats against X-Men as a for instance I don't know if I'd put it up there with Superman I'd, pr- I'd definitely put it up there with the Hulk TV theme mm-hmm. but like but, for but me, it deserves Superman to be the conversation and... though is what I'm saying okay that's fine yeah, whether or not it, whether fine. not I'm not saying it necessarily be but you can have it in a conversation and it's not an unserious conversation to have I gotcha I got, but of course I feel that way about the old uh, you know Iron Man cartoon 60s Tony cartoon theme also. makes you feel yeah it's cool exactly with a heart of steel folks mm-hmm. extremely underrated uh, and then of course you know Spider-Man's got his too but we don't need to go we don't need to do a power ranking of cartoon themes but that would be that, that'd be a good episode. episode we gotta work on that one build toward that one yeah yeah for sure I don't know if anybody's ever I mean I'm sure they've done it but I don't think anybody's ever done it in, like the podcast format where you actually talk about it as opposed to just like a bullshit YouTube listicle type thing who's our top yeah. 10 that'd be, I tell you that'd be a hell of a YouTube listicle I guarantee you you'd get fucking tons of you also get demonetized immediately because of everything playing nothing but copyright, copyright. Yeah. right but uh, yeah that's a fucking I gotta think about that now <laughs> I have so many things stuck in my head concurrently right now it's like my head is spinning like a <laughs> fucking dollar slot in Vegas you look like that uh, Jim Lee oh sorry that uh, Stan Lee trading card from Marvel Universe Series 1 where he's like yeah, yeah where I've got this, all the different characters <laughs> yeah yeah. the Ever Eleven Hulk. Hulk Hulk definitely not the best of those for sure no but that part's fun <laughs> Hulk Thor's was worst I think Thor's is the worst well Submariner's pretty bad too I don't remember Submariner's oh, save it for the podcast <laughs> save it for the podcast in fact we could end this one right now and then start that podcast <laughs> no I'm not prepared for that I gotta do fucking research for that shit but I am gonna hit Life the stop helps. button just so I, I've got this contained 
Uh, so as far as social media goes, 20th Century Geek Podcast, 21st Century Boys, Art the Clown, Billy Hines, Brem, CH, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Dave's Comic Heroes Blog, Del Dracula, Ed Moore, Eugene R. Hendricks, Voice Actor Home Studio, The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, History of Comics on Film, Jason Snick Venable, Jocktastico, Julia Raul, Rainbow Edition, Kali Yuga, Speed Run in 12,000 Years. That's a lot. You might want to work on that panel, buddy. I'm sorry. Uh, K at uh, K Lord C. Keith G. Baker, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Marvel Universe Online Project, Mike at Cindy Leads to Me, Paul Sharkey, Rad Roller, Rana Mike Not on Blue Sky, Richard Field, Siskoid, Superbound, Talk Nerdy to Me, Tuso versus Capcom. Do you know what Tuso is, man? No. T-E-U-S-O. I know we know what Capcom is. Yeah, Capcom, yeah. yeah. Thomas Scorey, Toxin45, Talk Two True Freaks, You Should Be Listening, and Ufta at Fryhole, yeah. Finally, there's a comment from Del Dracula writing, the month 1963 was so was the month I learned there were solicitations and that some comic shops would populate a pull box based on customer requests from a distributor catalog. So between the return, quote unquote, of more and the mind exploding concept of a pull box, I was really, really looking forward to this series. Thematically related, Steve Bissett is the subject of comic book creator number 28, summer 2022 magazine, in case you weren't familiar, and talks a little more about the 1963 debacle there. I was indescribably excited about his book Tyrant, but that's another story. And by the way, uh, um, you know, we talked about how a bunch of people were trying to do their own version of the 1963 annual that was never published. We talked a bit about Don Simpson working on that. That has actually been solicited from Fantagraphics Comics. It's called X Amount of Comics, 1963 When Else Annual. He definitely goes off on his own little tangents. It mostly involves Megaton Man and his characters, as well as characters from the um, Pictopia book, the one I gave you a, while, a little while back. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. yeah. And so I, I've got that on order. I'm going to read it. I, I don't know that we're going to revisit this material anytime soon. I think that we've kind of done what we were going to do with 1963, so I don't think there's a whole other episode in that. But if folks are interested in the continuing saga of uh, uh, bootleg 1963 annuals, that one's on the way in, I believe, August. Okay. Hey, that's it. That's all for Spawn. Thank God. This be some spread. Gambit not going to be playing solitaire tonight. Gambit, what are you doing over here, talking to yourself in the third person? And what's all this food? Oh, Professor, Gambit have plans tonight. Once Cher shows up, Gambit gonna wine and dine her. Then we gonna listen to Fan Holes, the pop culture podcast made for the fans by the fans. Fan Holes? I'll not have my school turned into a den of debauchery and science fiction trivia. No, Gambit. You'll just have to perform your obscene mating rituals elsewhere. Uh-oh. Sound like the professor getting a little cranky. Gambit think it's time for you to go to bed. What? What are you... Ow! Unhand me at once! Unhand me, you swamp-fed ignoramus! Relax, Mona me. Gambit just gonna tuck you in real nice. Uh, X-Men, emergency help! Uh, curse you, fan holes! Hey, don't mess with the fan holes! Weekly content on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com Baby, I 
That damn song is stuck in my head now. Thanks a lot, Pete Holmes. My mind! Love him or hate him, everybody's got something to say about John Byrne. He ruined the X-Men when he left. That John Byrne, he's a sexist pig. The only thing bigger than John Byrne's ego is... Oh, wait, there isn't anything bigger than John Byrne's ego. John Byrne, oh, he he just draws the greatest butt on Superman. It looks so good. John Byrne is the greatest artist I've ever seen. Wait, who is he? John Byrne's 1986 Man of Steel series gave us the core reimagining of Superman that is still with us today. Third Degree Burn, a podcast about all things John Byrne. The good, the bad, and the legendary. Join Tim Elliott and Brian Hughes as they look over the nearly five decades body of work of one of the most influential comic book creators in the last 50 years. Third Degree Burn can be found at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes. I got a question though, I just am curious. Why? Doesn't Green Lantern have any junk? In the early 1980s, a young film fan named Quentin Tarantino walked into a local video store in the South Bay of Los Angeles. If I saw a mom and pop video store, or actually if I saw any video store, I would just go in to see what they had. There, he met another young film lover, employee Roger Avery. This is in the days when uh, we still rented beta tapes, and that's when you started walking in. Yeah. Quentin and Roger became fast friends and helped open up a new video store in Manhattan Beach, the now legendary Video Archives. We became a topic of conversation all over Manhattan Beach because we had this cool store. We watched movies all day. We talked about movies all day. Customers came in just to talk with us. The rest is history. And now, decades later, Quentin and Roger are teaming up again to watch the original tapes from the Video Archives collection. Now, the thing is, when Video Archives went out of business, I bought the collection. We're watching the video cassettes. It's now watching the Blu-rays. And if we don't have the video cassette, they can't be counted as a movie. Yeah. It, it has, has to, to be from the collection. On each episode of the Video Archives podcast, Quentin, Roger, and me, Video Archives announcer Gala Avery, will be watching films like Dark Star. Dark Star is so handmade that it almost looks like a graphic novel. This is bringing life and piss and shit and cum into the space world. Moonraker. You can imagine Elon Musk saying lines like, even in death, my magnificence is boundless. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, he might have <laughs> tweeted that, actually. Yeah. Demonoid, messenger of death. I think this is the best crawling hand I've ever seen in any movie. This movie is clever from beginning to end. And Piranha. And there are just people crying everywhere. Children half-eaten everywhere. I'm just laughing at children half-eaten <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> that's a good description, but that's a fantastic sentence. <laughs> and watch some of the original VHS trailers that came with the tapes. And the idea of Menachem Golan making like a kind of dystopian 1984 future film. Yeah. Which, as we're watching the trailer, is so good. Roger said, why aren't we watching this movie? Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. 
Bim all the way. Hey, hey, hey. Bim all the way. So come browse the shelves at Video Archives. Our grand opening is July 19th, but you can get your customer card early by following the Video Archives podcast on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a fan-produced, not-for-profit podcast. No copyright infringement is intended, and any use of copyrighted materials believed to be covered under fair use. If you don't agree, you can go straight to hell!